Welcome to episode 159 of A Pint with Shawnee B. I am here with the Don as ever. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We are doing this on the Don's birthday. Never let it be said that she doesn't have a commitment to the show and to her top 20, which she will be delivering number seven on in the show a little bit later. But how was your birthday? 31. 31. And I will say, yeah, no, it's very big of me to honour this commitment to the day that's in it. But I did bring along my, not champagne, Prosecco. We had champagne last night. This is Prosecco from a can. But sure, I have it in this fizzy wine. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to the Don. And we went away to a very nice little retreat for the last two days down the country in Ireland. We did. We went to Kilmackie House. Which is in County Wexford, which is south of Dublin, and is this very nice old 1700s former rectory. And it's part of the Hidden Ireland group, which is a bunch of similar type piles, are usually relics from past colonial domination by the British. More of that later in the podcast. But did you like it? I did. It was great. It's really difficult at the moment. Obviously, anybody working in that industry trying to make ends meet. They did their best. They did a great job. They were lovely people. The food was fantastic. Um, it was a nice little getaway. And I like I like things that are forty and hidden, fortish. Part of the Hidden Ireland group, Kilmokia has uh, worth a look for any of you staycationers. Uh, and I say staycation because the coronavirus continues to rampage throughout the planet. We're approaching seven hundred thousand deaths and twenty million infected. America, as we all know, is on fire. In Ireland, it's starting to take a little bit of hold again. We've had three counties. Ireland is uh, divided into 32 or 26 counties, depending on how you look at it. And we'll be discussing that in much more detail in a few minutes. It's amazing. Every country in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, here specifically, it's meat plants. But it's not just meat plants, but it's factory. And it's, you know, people who, first of all, are on minimum wage, working in close quarters. There's not the social distancing on the factory floor. A lot of them are immigrants. The living conditions, they're likely to be living together. There's also the shift living thing, which is a bit like what the miners used to do. So if you have an apartment where there should be two people there, there's probably four people living in it. And then at the night shift, another four people come and live there and you kick your man out of the bed. And, and that's obviously, so it's a breeding ground. So the bigger question is then, it's kind of similar to TB years ago. The more vulnerable people are going to be hit first. And if you don't want it to spread to the wider community, well, then you have to look at the poverty and the inequality and the conditions that we have people living in. The same with direct provision. I don't know whether you said it on the last podcast, but I like your line about if people are clapping for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would say it about frontline workers, nurses. But honestly, if the government suggests the whole country gives you a clap, you want to ask yourself what way you're being screwed over. Mm-hmm. Because like, what are you going to do? Bring, go to Aldi with your... That's thirty nine ninety nine. Yeah, do you accept rounds of applause? Yeah, so I think the, the, the interesting thing for me as we hit August of 2020 with only 149 days or whatever left in the year and this thing is here to stay and I don't know there's the the argument is that you have to get to a zero disease situation before you can in any way try and let things use of course the big overseas listeners will know that we Irish love our drinking and the pubs will be remaining closed now until September much to the chagrin of the pub owners but it's quite clear that anything to do with pubs and clubs and concerts and football occasions and sporting occasions is a, a a dumb thing to be doing right now in terms of, of spreading. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Obviously, we've got pubs open a little bit if they're serving food because they're open on a restaurant license, but you can't have a big night out. And that's kind of the idea. People thought, I, th- I know it's difficult if you're 
in that industry and I know a lot of people's livelihoods are affected and that they feel it's really unfair and it is because a lot of the rules are kind of arbitrary but it does serve the purpose of stopping big nights out which is kind of the idea out out you're allowed to go out but you're not allowed to go out exactly (laughs) they should have things like that out yeah not take not making a piss take but like things people will remember yeah yeah um so the last time we did uh, a podcast on your birthday was from canada last year yeah what have you learned as another you become another year wiser like if I were to go back a year and sit down with the Don in Toronto, age 30, I would probably say, I wonder if you could sit down. I've got some rather unpleasant news. <laughs> <laughs> you know the way, like it's like everybody on New Year's Eve is going, it doesn't matter what year it is, like thank God that was a dreadful year, roll on 2020. Oh, that's no, 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 no. I don't know if any, if any wiser, but sure, I'm here. Are you happier? Am I happier? I think so. Like, it hasn't been the most cheerful year, obviously. But, yeah, I think I'm generally happier, more settled in myself. Drinking wine all day, every day will make you put on weight. (laughs) Is it fair to say you came through the lockdown, etc., slightly better than you thought you might? (laughs) No. No? I don't know. I I... I was expecting more. It to be a lot worse for you, but you've adapted, I think. Yeah, but you've no choice, you kind of just... Yeah. We just did a quiz the other night for some of our friends, and one of the questions on the quiz was, what human being has won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Dr. Martin Luther King Peace Prize, and the Mahatma Gandhi Peace Prize, which are the, the kind of grand slam of peace prizes to win, and nobody got the right answer. All conflict is about the same thing, no matter where it is. It's about difference. Whether difference is your religion, or your race, or your nationality. And the message that we have to get across, and that we have learned in our part of the world, is that difference is an accident of birth. None of us chose to be born. And we certainly didn't choose to be born into any particular community. There's not two people in this hall who are the same. There's not two people in the whole world who are the same. Difference is of the essence of humanity. And therefore, respect for difference should be very, very normal and very common. But it is the first and deepest principle of real peace. And the answer was? John Hume. John Hume. The now, late great. We have a, num- most of our listeners are from overseas. I think our split is basically about 20% Britain, 20% America, and 60% the rest of the world. Australia's big, Singapore's, China, weirdly, and a few others. So many people listening to this won't know who the hell John Hume is. And John Hume's death last week in Ireland was... Fair to say, the death of a, as someone said today, political and humanitarian and all-round colossus for our country. Would that be fair? Yeah, a, a lot of people have said throughout the week, the greatest man in politics in the history of Ireland. And I'd say fair enough, yeah. I, there's very few people who would argue with that. So all of you listening will know that there's an Ireland problem, I presume, that there's been an Ireland problem for most of your lives. 
tipping away in the background a bit like Beirut and Lebanon, which had this enormous explosion, which is also a terribly disturbing for that country. But we've had an issue with the British. A lot of my friends, Don, whenever I went overseas, said, what's going on with that and the British Isles and all the things that get up our nose and appropriating <laughs> our actors and all this kind of stuff. Is it possible for you to, in a very short space of time, give a dummy's guide to why John Hume became important? So before we talk about John particularly, then sort of ancient history of why Ireland and Britain are at loggerheads still to this day. Right. Well, I don't want to oversimplify things. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to oversimplify things. And I think the reason you get those responses when you're abroad are because in Britain, they're not taught about the ins and the outs. So, you know, they, they will be insensitive, but they're not necessarily mean to be an asshole, but it causes great offence. So basically, Ireland is a former colony of Great Britain. They had that empire thing where they went around taking over countries and sure look, they weren't the only ones, but <laughs> we were their nearest neighbour. So obviously... They were the biggest. They, well, they were, they were. Nothing to brag about. Mm. Uh, but so we were owned by Britain, let's I say. I Trump was in charge. Oh, sweet <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so, the greatest empire, the biggest empire, the most deaths. That's essentially what they've been saying for years. You're taking the most plunder. The sun never set on the empire. I mean, like, really, it's not that much worse. Um, yeah, so we, we were part of the British Empire and... Obviously, we tried for independence frequently and didn't always work out. But long story short, 1921, we finally got independence of a sort in the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which involved a partition of the country. So six six counties of Northern Ireland would stay with Britain and uh, Ireland would have independence of a sort. Ireland was not going to be a republic. It was going to be home rule, essentially. So we'd have our own parliament, which is pretty much the way it is in the North, actually. But we'd still have to swear allegiance to the Queen yada 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 so a lot of people were unhappy with partition like you gave away the six counties that's not okay but also the form of independence that was brought back was not good enough um so then we, there was a civil war so that can all be seen if anyone wants to watch the movie michael collins with liam neeson and uh yeah yeah <laughs> pretty woman wasn't she? Sweet Jesus. Oh God, she was all was that an American? Yeah, yeah. It's like, look, it's, it's not necessarily where I learned my history from. Yeah. But anyway, the long and the short, we got independence of a sort in 1922. We had a, we had a bit of a civil war. And in 1949, Ireland actually officially became a republic, which meant that we had nothing to do with the Commonwealth. Total independence and obviously not Northern Ireland, which is still part of the United Kingdom. We've got two traditions on the island. We've got Catholics and we've got Protestants. And there were quite a lot of Protestants concentrated in Ulster. Those people obviously were very strongly uh, loyalist and unionist and did not want an independent Ireland because, first of all, they they considered themselves British and they wanted to be British. But also there was the religious aspect, the idea that home rule would be Rome rule. So they didn't want to be part of an independent country of Ireland where they're the minority. Yeah, so the Pope is not actually in charge of our country in any way, Mm -hmm. but it was a predominantly Catholic country. If you if you split off the island of Ireland from Britain, then Protestants in the north and here, but there were much more in the north, become the minority. Mm. And that's bottom line, they weren't having that. That's the idea of partition. So, you know, we're tipping away with our own country. Yeah, it's fair to say we have to try and start a country from scratch. Police, you know, schooling hospitals, everything, right? And we're a very poor country. Yeah, we're tipping away. We're a poor country. And it actually did become very much Rome rule. And that's a whole other thing. You know, the Catholic Church was basically handed, we don't know what to do about social services now that Britain's gone. Uh, Oh, Catholic Church wants to take over all of education and all of 
this and that. So, so there was a point to that. But anyway, we're tipping away and so are Northern Ireland. But in Northern Ireland, the Catholics or the, the nationalists are a minority at this point. And they're not that much of a That's minority. It's a 40% minority. It's not that much of a minority. But there's gerrymandering going on, which basically we, we can dick it around how many people we're going to have in each constituency, where we're going to have the borders, all of that kind of thing, to make sure that there's always going to be a unionist, loyalist, Protestant majority government. So the Protestants are always in power. That made life really shitty for Catholics. It, the huge discrimination, you couldn't get jobs, there wasn't housing, there was, there was poverty, you couldn't get credit, you couldn't get loans. Life was really shitty. People start getting annoyed. So in the late 60s, we have civil rights groups coming up and marching for all of those things. This is the start of the troubles because that starts getting hairy. And then talk about where, where it kind of kicked off, because it kicked off in the west part of Northern Ireland, which is the bit closest to the Atlantic rather than the Belfast side, for any of you who know Northern Ireland. So there's a place called Derry or Londonderry, depending on which <coughs> side of the fence you swing. That Officially, it's Londonderry, but everyone in the south calls it Derry. Well, I mean, I don't Tell say me. Derry, London when I go to England, do I? <laughs> so... Which would be a good thing we should start doing. I do it in Irish as well. <laughs> Which but, yeah, explains so. So Derry was a sort of a, a very Catholic, you know, centered. Felt it was Irish, but it was on the wrong side of the border. Yeah, but like Derry, I mean, of the different places in Northern Ireland, Derry's kind of more Irish feeling. Yeah. So that was kind of where a lot of the civil rights stuff was starting, and it was it was around housing action, that kind of stuff, and there were marches. Now the marches were banned by the government, and they marched anyway. And the RUC is, not now, but that was the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary, that's the police force. They, shit started getting heated. And the simplest way I can say is, if you look at Black Lives Matter and all that was going on in the past couple of months yeah, in America, that kind of shit. So rubber bullets began in Northern Ireland. Literally that kind of stuff. Things got more heated. They're wrong on every side throughout the trouble, so I don't want to be too opinionated, but RUC made a few boo-boos that meant that the people of the Bogside and Derry didn't, wouldn't let them in anymore. By a few boo-boos, I mean, they beat people to death. So there was that. But yeah, all hell broke loose over the space of a couple of years and it got worse and worse. And it was, and then it spread because the people of the Nationalists in Derry called Nationalists all over Northern Ireland to rise up to help take the heat off them a little bit. So that's how it spread all over Northern Ireland. And that's essentially the beginning of the Troubles. So the part of Derry that was Catholic-centric and, and oppressed and not getting jobs and run down and gerrymandered and poverty ruled sort of became a little enclave called the Bogside and started to agitate against this situation very vehemently, sticks and stones mainly at this stage, and marching. Soldiers were, were on the streets. That, that's the sort of place yeah. where John Hume was born. And as a young man, he started engaging. Yeah, well, like, and within a year, sticks and stones turn into petrol bombs and tear gas, and sure, here we are. But so one of the things John Hume did was he, he he set up the very first credit union in Northern. So one of the things he realised was inequality, and he, throughout his life, he kept a mantra that was, the land doesn't know it's got a border. It's up to the people to shape the land. And we were at this impasse in Northern Ireland where it was a zero-sum game. We had... Protestants, Unionists, Loyalists to the Queen and the Crown of England saying, we're not budging, Ulster is right, we have a right to be here, we have a right to self-determination. The Catholic Nationalist side, on the back of what Don spoke about, Michael Collins, is still saying, we need a united Ireland, and look at the way you're treating us, this is not good enough, and so we're happy to go to kind of war on this. John Hume, first of all, started in the area of trying to reduce inequality and help 
people get money to buy homes or even food mm. and reduce the poverty. But that quickly escalated. Yeah, well, I mean, the, like the, his first foray into politics, he wasn't at all political, but he was interested in housing and set up a housing association with a priest friend. And they, they housed people in flats in old houses because they real, they kept trying to build and they realised they were going to, they never got planning permission because if they did, that would interfere with the gerrymandering. So quickly became political because the personal is political. So, mm-hmm. uh, but he was dealing with poverty, ha- how to make lives better. But he did set up the first credit union. Like he himself came from a house with no money and it was really important to get credit. If you, without credit, you, you've no hope to do anything. And, and so credit unions, people, people probably aren't familiar with them if they're not Irish, but they're basically where poor people get their money. And to this day, like, yeah, we can use banks and stuff now. But bottom line, anybody from, I don't know how, how many people use the credit union in your circle, Sean. I don't know how prevalent it would be. Well, one of my guests, John Devlin, was a very big credit union here near, near us in Rings Inn on Pierce Street. But yeah, it, it, you, you have loan sharks going around to mothers demanding ridiculous usury and, and percentage of, of repayments to the point of compromising them uh, physically, be it death or beatings or whatever it was. And, and, and then, you know, people need to live, people need to have money on it. Yeah. So to, to stop this, it's a, it's a bona fide fair... You let you give what savings you can to the credit union. They lend it out, and it's not. It's yeah, not it was basically money. like it's like a co-op yeah. bank, so that poor people could have credit, and you're not borrowing off loan sharks and having them come and smash your house up and take every stick of furniture and beat you up while they're at it, which was essentially what was happening. So it's a huge part of Irish culture now, and that's thanks to John Hume. Mm. So the thing started to foment uh, throughout the 60s. I was born in 1968. One of the things we were talking about before we pressed record is just the difference in our ages and, uh, you know, how when I was growing up, the troubles were an absolute uh, all-encompassing presence in my life. Television had just arrived, so bombs were going off. I think 1972 is probably the next place to jump to where there was a huge civil rights march in Derry known as Bloody Sunday. That's the Bloody Sunday you too sing about in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, uh, where by this stage, British soldiers were uh, in Northern Ireland trying to keep the peace. So you had the, or you see the local police, you have British army paratroopers, many of them very young kids, many of them sort of trigger happy and they shot into a crowd. They killed 14 people, I think. Many were injured and it became this sectarian war and it started spiraling out of control innocent people were getting killed and the IRA as people will have no doubt heard became the kind of nationalist terrorist in, in many people's estimation division that was designed to try and basically bomb the Brits out of Northern Ireland that set up corresponding paramilitary terrorist organization on the unionist side the UDA the UVF and there was all these splinter groups and the whole thing by 1972 or three, was an absolute shit show. Yeah. So we were saying it, it's really interesting because Sean was born in 1968, which is literally, that's the very start of the civil rights shit where everything starts blowing up. And I'm born in 1989. That's And in 1985 was the first time the British government agreed that they do in fact have to entertain the Irish government in, to, in trying to negotiate things. Mm. It was the first time. So I'm born four years after that. And that's also years after the hunger strikes, after Bloody Sunday, all of that kind of stuff. The year that you were born is also the year that my mother's family moved to Donegal and they moved to just inside the border of Donegal because my grandfather ran Bleak Pottery, which was in Northern Ireland and they wanted to live on the right side of the border. Mm-hmm. 
So my mom grew up with everybody in the town was in the RA. Um, the RA is short for the IRA. When I was going to visit my grandparents in the early 90s, we had to change the route every time because you're coming up in a Dublin reg and there's soldiers and depend you're watching the news. So like my memory of watching the news wasn't just, oh, is that happening? My memory is like, that's where my grandparents are. My memory is, are we going on our holidays this year or not? Are we going to go and see John and Pop? And vaguely understanding and parents kind of talking, you kind of hear half of it, but they're, t- they're discussing whether we can go or not. And well, I don't want you going this way. So that's my early memory of what mm. the troubles meant. But so I grew up with an awful lot of constant talking about history, constantly uh, Republican messages. And I had this layer of my grandparents are there. So I'm actually, because like nobody, when I was growing up, nobody would go near the North. You just, why would you go there? No, thanks. So a bit like many of the other great, great jobs they've done leaving some of their colonial um, countries, Britain carved a border, as the Don said, across these six counties. And there were border checkpoints all the way along this border with British soldiers policing them. Yeah. Either side of that border, on the on the on the southern side, the the Republic of Ireland side was where band it was an abandoned country. That was where the IRA's stronghold was. It's where they hid their weapons. They get over the border fairly easily, or they blow up checkpoints or whatever. As a person growing up, there's very little. There was very little violence in Dublin. There were a number of bombs went off in Dublin, but not to the same degree as it was happening up there. Whatever side of the fence politically you were, you were inculcated that, and I still believe this day. You know that there is a justification for a united Ireland. Then it becomes, well, how do we achieve it? And I think what John, what John Hume did was he understood that there's no way the IRA or the UVF are going to meet their objectives. And there needs to be a middle area that somehow said, so he set up a political party called the SDLP designed to see if there could be a middle way that would be about Northern Ireland mm. people. Right. Yeah. What do the people of Northern Ireland collectively think? Not what do the IRA think or the Catholics? Yeah. Or the well, I mean, South a lot of that was Britain. kind of a case of you know, look, one group of people are affiliated to Great Britain, and one group of people are affiliated to Ireland or wish to be. And John Hume kind of went, yeah, but like none of them are living here. We're all living here. So how about what we in our community think, rather than who who we'd like to belong to? That kind of vibe. And he also he was a big fan of the EU, the European Union. Mm which was actually during the Troubles that Ireland joined the then EEC. And that was really important because the citizenship is confusing for people. So people in, from Northern Ireland have dual citizenship. They can be British or Irish or both, depending on which they want to claim. But they're also European citizens. Now, that's Brexit has thrown a whole lot into that. And what was really useful and, and something that he John Hume leaned on was that gives you another identity. Having a European identity means that you don't, we can say, okay, well, like, you know, we're all European and anyway, more localised, what do we want to do about our local communities rather than consistently bleeding, you're either green or you're orange mm. and, and to try and get away from that because no one's going to budge and that's not going to be useful in any way. And I, and I kind of have to, we have to remember, John Hume is a hero that nobody will say boo about, but he got a lot of shit thrown at him. Mm. He got an awful time. And one of the reasons was because he spoke to the provost, the provisional IRA. He spoke to the baddies on both sides, the people but, with the guns. Well, so the other thing that's critical about what John Hume did is that most of the funding for the IRA was coming from America. So there was this, and still to this day, there's something like, you know, there's 320 million people in America, and I think 50 to 60, maybe even higher of them, believe that they're Irish. That sort of Irish-American, we joked about it in the hmm. previous podcast, tends to be very 
green-tinted spectacles. The ancestors of these people left in huge distress from famine or from a collapsing uh, country. And they funded, so there's yeah. Norade and things like that, that were funding guns and everything into the into the IRA. Yeah, so look, it's, it's incredibly dangerous when any of the Irish-Americans, they don't really know. They don't know their history. They're, they haven't been living here. They don't know. So it's just a simple, It's re, their, their Irish identity is really important to them. So they'll, in, the, in the Irish bars in, in America, oh yeah, we'll, we'll put money in. We'll put, they're putting money into the RAF fund, but that's blowing up mm. people. That's, that's shooting people. And likewise, there's a difficulty in Great Britain where they don't know. They haven't had to learn the history, mm. the ins and the outs. They haven't had to live it. So ignorance ignorance has been a huge problem and ignorance when then you mix it with a certain pride and that I'm of those people and you throw a bit of money in there that was a huge problem but John Hume was a fantastic diplomat and he understood that but my point previous to that was that you know he spoke to the likes of Jerry Adam and, and Martin McGuinness he spoke to IRA figures Fame, which were the political wing of the IRA so he spoke, he spoke to a lot of IRA figures and, and Provo figures he was constantly trying to bring them to the table and a lot of people, certainly on the Unionist side, but also people here kind of were disgusted by that. Like, you know, s- stop making them legitimate. Stop mm. legi- legitimizing these people. They're killers and they're terrorists. Now, I think in Ireland, nobody would really say terrorists, but it's like, stop stop legitimizing the violence. Mm. Um, but what, what John Hume was doing that's of interest to me is that you can't magic people better, but if you politicize people, then then they stop being gangs, and that's a really interesting. That's something that I've been very interested in year, for years. You have to legitimize them to an extent to bring them to the table, but if you exclude them and you leave them out in the cold, then don't be surprised when they won't put down their guns. If you want them to put down their guns, then you have to invite them to the table, whether you like it or not. And that is literally how the Good Friday Agreement happened. That is how peace came about. We have to sit down with people we don't like. We have to sit down with people that we consider to be killers. Or If you don't invite people into the political sphere, they're not going to go home and shut up about it. But I just want to finish this thing about America because, you know, America and Britain, not so much under Donald Trump because who wants to be a pal of his at the moment, but they were, they're the strongest allies of each other since World War II. And Margaret Thatcher was in control of Britain at the time and she was a horrific... She was a thundering bitch. Yeah, bitch towards the Irish and things Irish. And John Hume decided that the only way this was going to be fixed was if America started putting pressure, A, on not supplying guns and arms into the IRA, and B, on Britain to come to the table and not in the Margaret Thatcher kind of out, out, out kind of way because she was very, very vehement about not wanting to deal with anything to do with Ireland, partly because... A huge numbers of her government were uh, reliant on loyalist MPs from Northern Ireland, and that changed when Tony Blair got elected. So he went over, he became known as the 51st senator from Northern Ireland, and he really pumped Hans and he pumped Clintons and Kennedys and all of the Irish Americans to say, you've got to look at this problem differently. You've mm. got to stamp out the gathering arms because if there's a dry up in arms, then they'll come to the table. And it was a, it inspired... Uh, thing and Margaret Thatcher in her book says uh, Bill Clinton made her do it yeah well absolutely I mean Margaret Thatcher all the way through it was kind of this constant thing of we don't deal with terrorists we don't speak to terrorists which was just basically a cop-out an entire cop-out but that was the attitude "Mm, sorry it's ours we own it we don't Mm. care we don't have to listen to you you know Margaret Thatcher did precisely that just hiding behind the terrorists guys we don't have to do anything and John Hume 
worked and worked and worked to get the pressure from America so that they had to, no, you do have to talk to us. And he was instrumental in the 1985 agreement where the British government had to acknowledge that the Irish government does need to be involved in negotiations that didn't get us peace but we couldn't have we couldn't have gotten where we got without that Mm. and that that was all of his diplomacy she was brought to the table dragging with her heels dragging but that's exactly how he did it it was ingenious and it was tenacious and it was brilliant but he he still had mud thrown at him I mean I I realise he didn't single-handedly get peace but he did a lot that other people didn't manage to do and he was ripped to shreds by a lot of people because he sh- he's doing it wrong. But you know what? He's doing it. And you're not. You know, the, the story I referred to earlier, one of the things that happened uh, to me at the time, like I was working in the ad business here. We just won the Bushmills account. When Bushmills would be like Guinness with Northern Ireland. It's a whiskey, but it's a you know, loyalist, Protestant-based brand, even though it's a global brand now. But like, you know, it, it is seen as a kind of a, a lion in the sand. It's a prod whiskey. <laughs> and they, they, they were looking to do a, a big new ad campaign and they, there weren't great ad agencies in Belfast at the time so they came down to the south and we ended up at CDP winning the business and I remember going up for my first meeting there and again I had never really travelled up and down to the north. People in the south tended to not want to get involved, right? It was too scary. And I drove up one day and I had my first meeting with a guy called Tom who was their marketing director and Tom and I had to sit down at a big boardroom table. And this was the first meeting. I'm quite nervous. I've got all the posters and the TV ideas ready to go and talk to him about how we're going to get them made. And before we started, Tom said to me, I want to talk to you about a few things first. And I said, sure. And he said, what's your politics? And I went, what? And like, this is like, this would never happen in the South. And Tom clearly was a loyalist. My name's Sean Boyle. The Boyle bit is quite Protestant. Robert Boyle was a famous Protestant, but the Sean bit would kind of give it away. But then I mean, it wasn't sure. Many proactive Protestants call their kids Sean's or Patrick's to make it kind of less, you know, divisive. So I said to him, uh, well, my politics, I mean, I just was honest. I said, my politics are I'm a nationalist. I believe in a united Ireland, but I don't believe in killing people to achieve those goals. And he replied to me, he said, well, just so that you know, and he gave this whole story about the backstory of his family in the Carl and the Wolf shipyards, and we used to kick nail, tins of nails over on Catholics as they walked underneath. And he said to me, I will pick up a gun against you if it comes to This is 1993. I was in this meeting terrified. All I said to him back was, listen, Tom, I won't pick up a gun against you. And that kind of disarmed him, so to speak, a little bit. And he, he kind of, he, we, we ended up having this, like it was 25 minutes. And I have to say one thing about Tom. Uh, hello, if you're listening, Tom, because I haven't seen you in maybe 30 years. But he became possibly one of the best clients I've ever had. He, it never came up again. He completely was professional, trusted me and all this kind of stuff. He needed to know where I stood because it was that tinderbox. It was that tinderbox where the whole wheels could fall off and the whole thing could descend into, yeah. into something terrible. You know? See, it occurs to be hearing that. I mean, he obviously knew what your tradition was, right? And... Uh, it occurs to me, if you turned out to be the best client, all was grand, he probably wanted to see just how, because it's going to be delicate. He and Bushels are, are of particular tradition. He probably needed to know how easy riled you would be. Maybe. Well, it didn't feel like that. It felt very heartfelt from him. You know, the, you have to look at it from the loyalist point of view. They had their own IRA, as we mentioned, or a UVF, UDA, who were fairly vicious bastards as well, blowing people up, shooting people in retaliation and 
uh, and not. So there was a kind of a war going on yeah. between with with the British army and the RUC caught in the middle of all this. So there was like five or six factions and John Hume waving a white handkerchief going, can everyone just fucking calm down? We need to talk about it. It, it was just, at that, that was the first time I really got close to it. And I was going, I don't think he was playing me because he didn't, he, he was very, very earnest about this. If I gave him one thing maybe about it, he was just trying to see if I would be honest. Yeah. You know, if I would say what I, what I, what my beliefs were, which I think he, I was, and I think he was too. And we got that, we got that, it's a weird foundation to build a relationship on, but it was a very solid one. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's the honesty straight up of like, you have your tradition, you have your feelings, and I have mine, and we can sit here and be polite, but it's best we get it out of the way, and we know, can we work together based on yeah. this? But anyway, Northern Ireland, eventually, we're talking about the late 90s, Tony Blair comes into power, yeah? Yeah. So, we can, we can go on and on, but yeah. long, long story short... In 1998, we had the Good Friday Agreement, which is also known as the Belfast Agreement, because in tradition in the North, we have to have two names for everything, the Tide name and the Tad name. (laughs) (laughs) So that was in 1998. And And we have to mention Trimble, I think, here as well. Yeah, sorry, David Trimble uh, would have been from Yon Tradition, the other one. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had John Hume, they had David Trimble, and they both won the Nobel Peace Prize. What I will say is John Hume donated the money from his Nobel Peace Prize, and he donated it to one of them was to the Vincent de Paul, mm-hmm. which would be a Catholic charity, and one would be the Salvation Army, which would be Protestant. Um, so he donated his money, and that needs to be said. But yeah, so the, the Good Friday Agreement was reached, and it involved a lot of people sitting around tables that promised they would never, ever, ever sit around a table. Yeah. The long and short of what that was, was when the agreement was made, we had to have a referendum. If you change the constitution, there needs to be a referendum. In the South, the referendum was to take something out of our constitution, which was put in 1937. The Irish constitution included a claim on Northern Ireland as a national territory. Mm -hmm. So that had to be taken out as part of the Good Friday Agreement, which means that all of the Irish people, and and predominantly Mm nationalists, had to go out and vote and say, we're going to take out that claim, which which is a big thing. What's interesting is like you were so much older and you, you kind of a working memory of that, but you left before the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. So I was in Ireland for the Good Friday Agreement. I remember going to vote. I didn't get to vote, obviously, but I remember it. I remember how emotional everybody was in the house. I remember watching it and nails bitten and it was such a strange thing. I remember going to visit my grandparents after that. Mm. Well, actually my grandfather, because my grandmother was dead at that stage. And because it was taken out of the constitution that Ireland was claiming Northern Ireland as part of the territory... But instead, it was offering citizenship to anybody on the island who wished to claim citizenship. And part of that was that they had the dual citizenship. And part of that is that there, there were to be there's to be no hard border. And that's what people who aren't Irish but are hearing the news the past couple of years will have been hearing around Brexit, the Irish problem and the hard border. Yeah. A huge, a huge important thing was that the border was gone. And now when you drive up, there's a motorway. You can barely see. You just you notice that the speed signs change because. And and Britain in in return said that they have no selfish right over Northern Ireland, and they are prepared to allow Northern Ireland be decided by the people of Northern Ireland as yeah. a, as a mass entity. You also had uh, Tony Blair coming in, taking over from John Major with New Labour with a massive majority. So the, the politicians in Northern Ireland didn't hold sway over the balance of power in Westminster. He put in place a great woman called Mo Mullen who came in. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton got involved. Mitchell was his envoy and a whole. And then we had the Irish government, the British government. Trimble gets a big mention because he brought the, the loyalist Ian Paisley, the hard mm. right loyalist. He got them to silence their weapons. Hume got Jerry Adams and the IRA to silence their weapons, although Jerry Adams 
claims he was never in the IRA, but that was Sinn Féin, and that's what Sinn Féin, you may have spoke, heard of, have spoken about before. Yeah, It's all very still complicated. Well, so the one thing that we, we, we have to, just as uh, the Irish people voted to have that removed from the Constitution, so we're no longer claiming Northern Ireland, but we offer citizenship to any person who wishes to claim it as an Irish citizen. Also, it stipulates that if at any point it looks like there is um, an appetite for a border poll to decide about a United Ireland, that that is to come about. And that's part of the Good Friday Agreement. So when we look at it from a Brexit point of view and people are talking about the possibility of a United Ireland, it's part of the Good Friday Agreement that it was it's never a permanent thing. If at any point that's to change, then there's to be a referendum. Mm-hmm. But there would also need to be a referendum down here. Well, I think a lot of people as well, friends of mine, don't understand what the Brexit thing's got to do with Northern Ireland. Brexit means Britain comes out of Europe. That means... Northern Ireland is still part of Britain. That means Europe has a border on the island of Ireland. That means we have to put border patrols back in place. That means it could kick everything up again. That means we could have British soldiers on borders getting bombed or petrol bombed or shooting people and the war could very easily spark back to life. So all of that work that was done by John Hume and all those people we mentioned could just go up in smoke. People like Boris Johnson and a huge number of people on the mainland of Britain do not understand this. No, they don't. And so when Brexit happened first, we're co- it's been happening for four years. Yeah, well, when, <laughs> like yeah. So so after the referendum, suddenly it was just like, oh shit! I mean, it had been kind of mentioned Ireland, but it hadn't really been. You know, it's just been big buses and lies and yeah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we've got this big problem because the par- partition happened in Ireland in the twenties, and it's a very different place a hundred years later. Now it's the border of Europe. Oh shit, what are we going to do? The Good Friday Agreement is going to be got up and soaked. We're absolutely not going to have a hard border. I can't imagine anybody in the island of Ireland is cool with the hard border idea. It's it's just even people from loyalist tradition, yeah. not good. Um, but then you had we had constant vox pops um, of people going, going around, mainly England, just interviewing. What do you think? Well, I just think the Irish just need to get over it. They should just rejoin the UK. Yeah. It's arrogance, but it's also utter ignorance. If there's any lessons from Brit from Brexit, it's, it just seemed like a yes no vote without having thought through what the fuck you're voting for, not just on Northern Ireland but on loads of other things as well. Blindly, the Union Jacks and the flags came out, and everyone thought we were back in Henry the Eighth time, or wherever Great Britain was great again, and we're stuck in that thing. I suppose the thing is, we, we've had peace, relative peace, since '98, and the difficulty is whether there's a united Ireland or not, there's a real risk of things heating up again. I, I don't think people really acknowledge that as much as they should. We kind of take for granted that peace is done and that's just the way it is. And it's not just another ceasefire and it's fine. And then in 2006, the Orange Order decided they were going to march in Dublin and they were allowed to march in Dublin. And that was not good. There were riots in Dublin. And now at the time, I was a member of Sinn Féin. And so I was attending meetings with hunger strikers and Jerry Adams. <laughs> so I have a, an interesting view on all that. And and then last year we had the killing of Lyra McKee, who is a fantastic journalist. She's 29. She was just there where there, where there were riots happening at the wrong time and she was murdered. But what we saw with that was that there is, and that's only last year, we, there was a resurgence of all of these paramilitary groups. So, I mean, the thing is, now, if you look at if any little resurgence of, of trouble and of paramilitary organisations. The young guys with the guns are, like, I'm 31. They're all going to be younger than me. That means they're peace babies. That means they don't remember the troubles, the height of it. They will have some memory of it. They will have their family stories. 
but they they're somewhat removed and that's quite dangerous everybody on this island above 18 had to vote or had an option to go and vote and when you go along and you it's kind of like a covenant being signed the good friday agreement was everybody was in on it and when you go and cast that vote you understand that you can't be shouting up the rah <laughs> like there's there's that so i i worry about the lack of you know when you, you just you become comfortable and you take for granted peace and I think Brexit has caused a huge amount of... I personally have consistently seen unhelpful comments online that piss me off. I know an awful lot of people my age, people are a lot more Republican than they were five years ago. Their comments, like the, the word tan, it has come back into it. It's being used all the time. Tan is a back word for... Tans were, were a brutal force sent over by Britain in the early part of the 1900s. Yeah, so that's a, that's a word used for Brits, but not, not nice British people. But when somebody says that's quite colonial, then they're a tan. And there, there's a lot of that. And some of it's tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of think people forget how... It's not guaranteed that peace is still here. And we were asking Ariane, would you like to see a united Ireland? Yeah. Okay. And, and I the would, right terms. And I would too. But then, would you like to see a border poll next month? No, we can't do anything until there's now stability in Europe again, and stability in Britain again, and stability in our own country, and Northern Ireland again. We can't have anything... Yeah. Because it's like a tinderbox. I mean, yeah. as you said, it can go off. There were also provos with balaclavas walking down the yeah, yeah, street yeah. two years so, ago. So, so I mean, it's not all gone. And I think, like, of course I'd like to see United Ireland. If there was a referendum, I couldn't vote to exclude no. my fellow countrymen and and not acknowledge that they'd write to be Irish. But I don't think I'd like to see that happen right now. I'd be very worried about what would happen. I would be worried that it would all go off. It's a complicated one. And I think the enemy of peace is ignorance and there's an awful lot of ignorance being spouted at the moment i'm sorry to see the passing of john hume but what i would like to see happen aside from lots of articles to say how wonderful he was and all that i would like to see our national broadcaster and possibly bbc i'd like to see a reminder of the troubles of how we got where we're going and a reminder of why it's really important to avoid sectarian violence and that begins with the way we speak and the way we speak online and that begins with an awful lot of the stuff that's tongue-in-cheek and it's a bit of fun um, and I think that's really important, and I think that's it, that's how we honour him. I think one of the bright sparks in the future may be the death of religion, so the sectarian element is starting to go by the wayside as people start believing, believing that God isn't on your side, whether you're Donald Trump or the provost in Northern Ireland or the UBF or the Protestants or the Catholics. We need to come to a uh, country where it's inclusive and diverse and everyone gets a fair go. I finished the piece with something from the paper yesterday by Tony Blair, who said John Hume's name now stands alongside Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin, Willie Brandt and Nelson Mandela as someone who charted a way forward for groups divided by their differences. And his article finishes with, this is why he believed that we should all study what happened in Europe and in Ireland, that every generation should relearn the lessons of the past. He believed lines that divide us aren't those on maps that all conflict was about seeing difference as a threat, and he believed in the open mind. His insights have relevance far beyond that of Northern Ireland, and the legacy he leaves behind is one we should protect, rather than trample on the garden we all created, we should continue to help it blossom. He said it fancier than me. <laughs> <laughs> right, that was a little tribute to John Hume's apologies if we went into a bit skewers, but this is a very complex problem that we have all grown up with here in Ireland. This brings us to number seven 
on the Don's Top 20 Countdown. Uh, a previous pint with Shawnee B, she asks me or gives me three clues to see if I can remember who it was I spoke to. What's my first clue? The law was written by the first man who broke it. Mm. Very familiar, but I'm going to need another one. In 1989, I hit the knee. That sounds like our friend from the Alabama Three. No. No? I just had to put in 1989 there because I'm, again, bringing it back to my birth. It's all about me. Uh, the third one, TED Talk. I did that shit 20 years ago. Toto? It's Toto. Amor <laughs> Dare. <laughs> Amor Dare. Okay, this is Antonio Fernandez. This is one of my personal favourite podcast that I did it is with the former head of the Latin Kings street gang in New York a man who first picked up a gun when he was eight years old was a drug addict in his teens was a killer was in prison Uh, well he was in prison for 13 years the first three of which were without any human contact whatsoever yeah okay I'm not sure whether he was a killer himself but he was certainly involved in killings and he's now gone straight with grow up grow out trying his very best to help uh, the division on the streets, preventing um, young Hispanic boys and girls from getting on into crime and is doing Trojan work. Uh, he does an awful lot of talks around the world. That's where I met him in Kinsale. The Don met him there as well. and They became fast friends. And we've stayed in touch even just through Facebook thumbs-ups and likes uh, as he... Basically, it's a redemption story. Yeah, so I mean, I have to preface this by saying, yeah, we did become fast friends, but uh, Toto knocked me off Facebook. So, I mean, <laughs> while I respect him as a man, Antonio, if you're listening, which I'm sure, like, I should hope you are listening, I just want you to know that your name is Dirt in Dublin now. <laughs> don't come to Tala. I don't care. Your name is Dirt. You can you can take it up with me in private message. But I, I always like to have a theme, and this is kind of a strange one, but I would posit that, I, so I had a great conversation when I met Toto, as I like to call him. It, it reminded me of him when I was talking about John Hume, which I know is an interesting one. I'm not suggesting that Antonio is the John Hume of the, the Latin New York. He would but, be a big fan of John Hume. He would be. And, and of course, so we also lost John Lewis this so, two weeks ago as well, another huge uh, person in the similar human So I had a big conversation. Experience. I had a big conversation with Antonio, and one of the things was that I was talking about some of the work that I had done 10 years ago, dealing with people in an out-of-probation project and how to how to help. And I, I had said, that I think that we need to politicise young people. I mean, and the people who are criminals and the people who are problematic and the people from the dodgy areas. And I think that there's a resistance to that. But I would be... An, explain what you mean by politicise. So I would be an advocate for if you have people in underprivileged areas, if you have a lot of crime, if you have a lot of bad stuff going on, instead of going into the schools, which they're not even in at a certain point, but instead of going to those communities and tell them, that's no way to behave, be a good boy, be like the rest of us, be respectable. When you've excluded people from respectable society, don't expect them to be respectable. And I, I, I felt strongly that we should go in to communities and tell these young lads who are angry, you're right to be angry. Yes, it is unfair, but you know what? Here's what you do about it, because what you're doing doesn't help. Here's how you write a letter. Here's how you you demand a seat at the table. 
and you, you invite them to be political because when they're political, if they pick up a pen, they're not their hand is busy and they're not holding a gun. And also, I believe that people have a reason. There is a lot of inequality. They have, but I, I think it's a very powerful thing rather than just than just deciding that people are criminals, terrorists, that they're a waste. That you decide to say. How you're going about it won't get anywhere, but your anger is real. Your anger is valid, but you have to, if you want to get somewhere, cop on, man up, pick up a pen and learn how to do it the right way. And he was relating that to what he's doing in his community. It's about not telling people that they like, he's still proud to be Aladdin King, not telling people that you can't be Aladdin King, that you can't be part of this, because this you have to look at what this offers people, what why this community is important to them. And what they're what they're lacking and why that matters. You change it for the better rather than saying, "Oh, you're in a, you're in a gang. That's pointless. That's that's outlawed. We should just cast you out of society." That kind of resonates with the John Hume thing, where all the criticism he got for legitimizing mm. um, the likes of Jerry Adams. Yeah. And the point is, when you invite people into the political sphere, you invite them to put down their guns. You never stop violence of any kind by anything other than sitting around a table and talking about it. Just to give you some context, this interview happened in Cork and I went to his hotel room quite nervous, actually, because, uh, you know, he has a reputation that precedes him. He opened the door in his jeans and he had no top on and he was covered in kind of prison tats. And it was quite a intimidating atmosphere at the start. But uh, we really hit it off and clicked. And by the end of the interview, we went down and had a pint of Guinness together. He's a guy I really respect for what he's trying to do a man who has put a violent past behind him and he has a young kid himself now and he's doing all of that work for him. So without further ado, I give you Antonio Fernandez. Mordel, right? Also known as also known as King Tone from the Latin Kings. Political movement and justice for his people. Anyway, I'm welcoming to the podcast Antonio Fernandez. Welcome, sir. Hey, how you doing? And thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. You have a good buddy uh, who's working in King Sales. She told me, "Hey, you got to do this guy. He's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> he's about his. You know, she she was a little more adamant than the other people. She probably wants you to." There's a lot of stuff written about you, and there's been a HBO documentary made by John Alpert, which is apparently is very very good. How did you end up from your family, from a small child, getting into this area? Well, it's, it's, it's basically uh, the story of what I call the other, the immigrant. I'm a third generation, I'm Puerto Rican. My right. mother and father were the second generation, came with their parents, mm-hmm. and I was the third. When they came in, it was tough, you know. We were at the time in New York in the early 70s. You had the the Black Power Movement yeah. for the rights of, 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 you know, the Black American. Black Panthers. Black Panthers, yeah. Martin Luther King, all that. There was a lot of things going on, but I, what I couldn't understand and know, I knew I wasn't black, I knew I wasn't white, but I didn't know I was a Puerto Rican. Yeah. I didn't know who I was and where did I fit in there. Talk to me about that, because I've lived in America as well, and there is the Hispanic... You can be Puerto Rican, you can be Mexican, you can be from South America, you can be from Spain. They, there wasn't, never felt to me the same cohesion that there was in African-Americanism. Even though they're all from different countries as well, historically. Yeah. But there wasn't that kind of organizing concept, I felt. Yeah, it, it's, it's really sad. Like I remember a politician that was running in New York, Badillo. He was running for uh, mayor. And it's the first time I ever heard of him. A Latin or Puerto Rican man yeah. even try to get a, a, some form of seat of power. 
And I was feeling left out in the sense that, it caught, you know, financially we wasn't competing. My father, he worked many years. My mother. Whereabouts father, in New York did you live? Well, well, I live in East New York, Brooklyn. It's right. a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very. If you look in the seventies, they made a another documentary called the Seventy Fifth, mm-hmm. and it's about the precinct of where I grew up and dirty cops from that precinct yeah. who helped. They said we were the bad guys, the Puerto Ricans, the blacks, but the whole community was in some way corrupt mm. because they were all. I think the 60s, 70s in New York was crazy because everybody was trying to find an identity, what yeah. they were going to do, and how they were going to compete in this capitalistic state while yeah. they had no capital. Yeah. They had no voice. Yeah. And it so was ghetto. The Irish the were ghetto, there. Yeah, the ghetto. The Irish Italian. left. And usually it was like that. The Italian already left it. Yeah. The, all the other immigrants that have moved on and, and, and had the ability to move forward, we inherited the leftovers. Yeah, yeah. East New York used to look like, I'm not kidding you, it was a part of war, Vietnam War because mm. in the building you have two good houses and the other six were burned. And I hated it. And more than anything, I hated being poor. What I was seeing was if I couldn't compete with what the TV was putting into my house, I wasn't equal to the people outside yeah. of my house. I became a consumer of wanting things to be able to compete instead of understanding that the values at home we're going to give me what I needed later on to compete the right way. So I wasn't a gang member first. First, I became a drug dealer. How many of you in your family? Were you, was there, was there a- okay, I got four sisters. I'm the second to youngest. I'm the only boy. Being the only boy and four sisters, I also was an inheritor of the most wanted thing in the ghetto was pussy. <laughs> No, I don't mean to be rude. Yeah, 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 yeah. But every every dude was my friend. Yeah, because of your sister. And then I started figuring out, these motherfuckers don't really want to be with me. They they haunted my sisters. Were you very protectful of your sisters? Yes, too protectful. I was the youngest. Yeah, yeah. Because in the ghetto, the boy takes care of his sister. My father, even though I was young, he said, watch your sisters. Watch your sisters. So I always thought I was the man of the house after him. Yeah. And dudes used to beat mass to show me you ain't a man yet. We could talk to your sister. And in that challenge, I started more, I was getting more angry because one, I didn't have none. The only thing I had, I couldn't protect. The system was telling me, you know, in school, already in third grade, I wasn't competing because I was English. I didn't understand the English language. My father and mother spoke Spanish and English to us. Right. Very bit confusing time in my life. Yeah. And, and, and I was just lost. Very religious. Yeah. My, my mother and father... Since the day I was born, Jesus has been in my house. Yeah. I couldn't get rid of the dude. He just <laughs> you know, have a lot in common with the Irish. Yeah. A, <laughs> We're all church here. Yeah, We're and, and the church. sad part is, is that was the other thing, that the pastor was filling our community because it was poor to get our mom's little $5 in dues. The message was, oh, if they're messing up, throw them out in the street and let the devil burn them till they come back. Yeah. But the pastor never was right. You don't come back. So... When I said that was another thing, I said, this Jesus dude is a little tough, damn, he's perfect, and this lady yeah, yeah. wanted me to be perfect, and that's far from perfection yeah. where I'm from. I mean, there's huge hypocrisy. Yeah, exactly. The, the yeah, whole yeah. deal of what they yeah. preach to yeah. our parents yeah. to make it seem that as a child, we shouldn't make mistakes. We yeah. shouldn't explore and fall. And sexuality, and, and meanwhile, and our priests are yeah, doing, you know. That. So in that missing, that confusing as a young man, I started looking for guidance because in third grade, my teacher was a very mean, you know, mean bastard and he didn't know how to connect why I wasn't learning. 
So every Friday I used to cheat on the spelling test. I right. can't spell to right. this day. Really? It, was he beating you and shit? No, he no. wasn't beating. What he would do Fridays, he knew I played hooky. But when I came, I had a girlfriend, little Mildred, in third grade, and she knew I couldn't spell, and she knew I was She'd hit. But you. she used to help me. We cheated. He used to catch me all the time because the bastard knew I had to cheat to pass. Yeah. And he used to call me Spick, and you never did put the big zero on the board. And then one day I remember, I was sitting in my chair, made me cry, and I picked up my head, and I said, I am not going to do this no more. I'm going to be a drug dealer. Because every day I woke up, my guys were in the corner. They were making money. When my mother couldn't give me, I'd go to the corner, they give me 50 cents, they give yeah. me a dollar. They watched out for the black. It was a very different, like, oh, drug dealers are evil. There was a time in East New York, if we didn't have drug dealers, we didn't have money. There would be no income in there. Do I paint a, can I paint a picture in my head a bit like The Wire? Yes. You get it? Yeah. That's what... And you were one of the little runner guys, were you? Yeah. Okay. I started first was, I looked out and they say, don't worry, you're not touching, just look out. Keep sketch for the cops. Bajando, that means he's coming. The cops see me, he know I'm calling, but he can't mess with me. Yeah, yeah. Earn me a lot of stuff. What age are you now? I'm there already like nine, ten years old. That young? Wow. Yes, sir. Okay, okay. I didn't wait long. So after that choice of telling my teacher no more and not going, I started playing hooky. My mother, my mother had four daughters to worry about. Yeah, she's she's learning English. She yeah. was nine, 18 when she got married. So you say she got married teen, and already when I was gone, there was already children. One after another. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to hate my mother because I thought she was supposed to be my mother and she knew everything. Little did I know she was a kid growing up too with four girls, but I didn't know it then. Yeah. She's so, still an adult to you then. Yeah, she's you know, still a girl. you have four. You know what you're doing. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I think she's an adult, but she. And was, was your old man around? Like, was he all the time? Yeah. Me, my mother and father now almost married sixty-seven years, and all my sisters went to school. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, you know, this theory of gang banger is because they got a crackhead mother or a crackhead yeah, yeah, father yeah. Yeah. and all this. The American ideology of capitalism made me a gang banger. It forced me to seek the riches it would that it told me like you know when we grow up we see TV advertising we, yeah the advertising they go hey if you're bad you don't get no toys but in my fucking neighborhood we didn't get toys because we were poor yeah. but we assumed we were bad yeah because that's what you said Santa yeah. Claus makes a list yeah. you better be naughty or nice while Jesus is saying yeah Jesus is saying so I got tired of that aspect and I mm. said alright I know how to get it so I started learning the drunk game. I was selling marijuana. And you were keeping all this from your own man or was he knowledge? Yeah, yeah, no, they were, they knew something was happening, but they didn't know what was happening because my parents were naive. To them, the streets were the, still the same streets they that they grew, grew up, up on. Just stay out of trouble. Don't get your nose dirty. Like, yeah, of course. The I'm neighbors out the window screaming. Yeah. But they didn't know that our president already made a, a deal with Oliver North to bring in cocaine yeah. for guns. Contras, yeah. And all of a sudden, my neighborhood had this beautiful thing called cocaine. And we had the dope from the Vietnam War that already came with them. Yeah. Not that they brought it, but they came with the sickness from the war, yeah. the dope habit. And my neighborhood was full with dope and coke. And, so uh, we're talking early 70s. 70s and now 80s we're going, right? I'm getting to the 80s and I'm married one. When was the first time you picked up a gun? What age were you? Can you remember? When I picked up a gun, I was probably 12, 13. Jeepers, right. And while this transition goes, I'm just showing you yeah, this yeah, process yeah. of four or five years, you see little Tom from third grade start growing up and now he's not, my nickname was Pachi, an endearing name. Pachi is Kiss. Yeah. Yeah, Pachi, you know, and, I, yeah. and, and when I went to the street and they called me Pachi, I said, oh, this name ain't going to do good in this ghetto. <laughs> that shit is too sweet. <laughs> Who 
Were you a fighter? Was a badge, I got it. So Where'd you learn to fight? Just from, on the streets? Yeah. When I went out, I had four sisters, and when they said something stupid, they called her a bitch, I fought. Yeah. A lot of them I lost. But you learned. I learned to yeah. fight. Winning wasn't the objective. The objective in my hood was that you fought. You win or lose, nobody cared. No. You they want to see you fight. You weren't a pussy. Yeah, you weren't yeah, a pussy. Yeah, yeah. They'll kiss your black eye. Yeah, Even yeah, the yeah. dude who beat jazz yeah, yeah. loved okay. you after it. Okay. You know, a lot of times, but it was that they wanted to make sure you knew how to fight. Because you had to fight to live there. So were you making pretty good money by the time you were 16? Sort of yeah, like? 16. So the marijuana got a little... Remember all the, yeah. all the Jamaicans came in and they wanted the herb game. And it became a bloody war that in one day in the Daily News, the center page, it was called Dog Day After Moon Hoon. Three Jamaicans were dead, a couple Puerto Ricans, and cops got shot. And because of that action, they were looking for me now. That form of money gang. I was already in ninth grade, you know, I was going through the process... I don't mean ninth grade and like I went to school. I'm talking when that time they passed you just to pass you. Right. To move you forward. Just to get you out of the system. Yeah, so my mother was like, oh, you went to six? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's in seventh. What know? about the first time you took drugs? Was that What was that like? I was like nine in uh, Dalsha Street, and we had what we call the dungeon, the basement. And of course, it was the older guys. The older guys thought it was funny. It was watch you get high, yeah. Getting us high, spinning us. Remember the strobe lights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we throw up and everything. And I remember one night, the first time I really got drunk. I, I was like, after I left school, nine years old. I walked home. It was right on the block from the dungeon. And I just had to fall in my stair. I couldn't make it upstairs. And my father gets home from work like three in the morning. And I'm on the stairs and he comes in. And I hear the dope and he looks me on the stair. And, and it was the funniest thing because you thought I was, he's mad. I can't walk. He cracked a smile like, look at my fucking boy. He thought you were drunk, I presume. Yeah, yeah, he's a yeah, drunk. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a man now. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. in the street. Same here in Ireland. That all happens. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, your yeah. manhood. Yeah, and, yeah. and then it gave me a false impression of what would make him happy and proud of me. I see. Not that he meant it. He didn't know I was already getting high to make other people laugh. I was getting high to coexist with this non-identity that I had. So I went into the heroin game. Right. I created a brand called COD, which meant cash on delivery. Yeah. So I had an elder on top of me, but he had the drugs. He had the thing, but I always had this creativeness. So that was the first time I really became a businessman, a marketeer and everything, because I already had the runner down. It's very interesting that you had that in you. You didn't learn that in school. No. It was, I seen, I watched my community. I was observing. You did what you saw on the television. Yeah. With drugs. With drugs. You made a brand. brand. Yeah, yeah. So COD said, fuck if what I want when I sell this dope, cash on delivery. Yeah, perfect. And then once you have the brand, did you also understand that you go, whenever I sell whatever, it has to be fucking good shit? No, that was it because he, the guy bought me something called Chocolate Farm, so it was a brown dope. Right. For the shooters. And then I found out what was the white dope. Okay. So the snorts. But the most thing I knew was this from, and this is a true story, playing hooky. I used to watch all my friends' dads and moms that were on heroin. For strange, strange reason, I got kicked out the house at 6.30 in the morning because it was girls' day. It was the girls to clean. Yeah. And the boy don't clean the house. The yeah. boy gets the fuck out. I sit in the corner and watch, and all the glass shining. Around. And then I used to see, and there was this one, one of my friend's father, when he used his name, he was a heroin addict, and he was in Vietnam. That's how I learned the story. He used to sit to me and preach to me about the addiction he had. Right. And how evil it was yeah. and where he got it. But what I found out that every heroin addict wakes up sick. 
he told me about mistakes. Yeah. And he used to tell me at night when he hustled, why he was hustling so he could get the night back. Mm. So when I opened COD, the guy gave me five bundles. It's $500 at that time. Mm-hmm. 60, 40, right? Yep. I'm a young kid. He said, let's see what you do. I gave him all away. He didn't understand. So when he came back, he was like, give me the five. And I'll give you, you know how drug dealers, I'll give you more, 10. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I need 25, but I don't got the five. And you're a, you're, you're a whipper. You're a young yeah. fella. So he's like, he's in the car. He's getting mad. So then I'm hoping I'm not explaining because I'll say tomorrow. I'm waiting for a reaction of something I put to plan with COD, but I didn't know if it was going to work. So what I did, I gave the five bundles away for free yeah. to all the heroin addicts. And this was the promise I made for COD. You bring me one guy, every bag you give me, you sell for me, I give you a dollar. You sell 10, I give you a bag. You do that for me from eight to the night, you'll always have your morning bag. You don't come with me with a customer. Yeah. You come with me with your runny nose, yeah. I'm going to secure you. And then at night, I'm gonna put you to sleep, right? That in a week after I gave the five, you know, we're struggling. But when he came to get his money, he was waiting, right? And I'm waiting for my brother. There's gotta be a line out there. Cause it was the first, I said, there's gotta be a line so far. Cause I told everybody, they, it's out there. They know it's good though. I kid you not. My, I call them my brother-in-laws cause later I got with one of the girls that were the okay. sisters. You know how it is. Yeah, of man. course. He runs to the window, he knocks and he mm-hmm. goes, yo, they're out there. We need now. And Andy's like, he got him strings. Like, what do you mean? And when he goes around the block, I swear to God, you thought Star Wars movie came out. There was a line of dope fiends with white people next to them wanting two or three bundles. That's 10 at a time. So now you have word of mouth. Not only word of mouth, I took the despise of the the, the, the pearls Mm, mm, mm. and I gave them value. I told them, I can't make money without you. And I'll take care of you for taking care of me. That was my drug empire. That was your first gang, yeah. And what happened was real quickly was not understanding that the adult was using me. I was making, and I kid you not, every two to three weeks we would make, see, $300,000. What? I was 16. I had my own apartment. Where did you put mother, the money? In safes that he used to take. Wow. I didn't care because you know what? We could get 12 cabs and put 20 of our friends in cabs because we couldn't drive yeah. and go to the Deuce, yeah. 42nd Street, and look, hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. gazelles and... And what the fuck, I care how much the boss was making. Yeah, yeah. Me and my crew, we eating. And that's when I first found the bandito, the bond. You talked about in one of the, the organizational structure of gangs and how helpful that is. If you have an addiction, if you're in trouble with the cops, exactly. if you're in trouble with, you've got a band of brothers who you can turn to. You could turn to. So that was, first it was the drugs. So what happened there is those things that I learned at home, everything that I see now, I'm getting older. I came to hate, not myself, I hated the community. I hated my parents. I mean, I was so disgusted when I found out that money could make a Christian yeah. turn a blind eye. To everything, yeah. You get it? Yeah. I seen that my mother used to fight with me for selling it, but when times got hard for the rent, she would come and knock on my spot door and say, mm-hmm. you couldn't tell. So I used to give her the money in emergency. And I You're said, a good boy. Boy, for this moment, yeah, yeah. but then when her friends looked, she would scream at me of the drug deal yeah. I was. Yeah. So I'm just showing you that whole thing. Inside your own head, were you realizing that the life you were picking and going down was going to end badly? So I did what every coward does when he wants out but doesn't know how. I self-mutilate myself with crack. So I found peace in cocaine, then the crack came, the 80s now, like 81, 82. Mm. 
and I get addicted on crack. Heavy shit, but you know what? I loved every fucking minute of it. You don't know how beautiful it is when you stand in a corner and nobody sees you. All they see, look at that bum. Look at Tony. He used to be a drug Look, he's fucked up. That's the son. He's a crackhead. Stinking. I mean, I was out there for almost four years. But I just didn't want to be part of the system no more. I didn't want to be a drug dealer. Yeah. I didn't want to be a son. At this stage, you had loads of money. Loads of money. And I need... You get what I mean? I seen yeah, yeah. that money didn't yeah. give me. It's very, you know, it's, it's interesting that there's a bum on the street. We have a huge homeless problem here, and I yeah. probably read about it. And everyone goes, "I oh, don't give them money because they're just looking for drugs or for boot." You know what? I go, "So fucking what? What if if the guy wants to drink himself to death? I buy him a beer. Buy him a You know? Well, you fucking. So well, you know, I was a young boy, crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that I I became a problem in the street. What I'm saying to support my I became Robin Hood. Yeah. I was the dude who used to like to go stick up my own spots that I created yeah. that were making money now. And now the guys I brought up and show how to make the money yeah. used to call me a crackhead. Yeah. So at night, I used to come with the red rag around my face and rob them, of course. And put the money into the community? No. No? Rob, get high with the community that was right. too poor to go okay. and didn't have the balls to rob. You get right. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, wait, an abandoned building. I have like, And they no. knew who you were. Yeah, they no, that was the funny part. So finally, after all the robberies, my boss was like, I love Tone. He made yeah. me money, but I got to stop him. So now, in all this time, I presume there's death, violence, gunshots, gangs fighting each my other. My mom's... Oh, oh, so you could picture, I went from having dreads yeah. to cutting them off after the dreads left and I went to war to becoming a good dress. And remember, my, my spot that I sold drugs were four buildings away from my mother's house. So I ran away from home four doors down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mother and my father used to sit and say, who is that dude? They see me come with two guns on the avenue, blowing against the other drug dealers. Mm. And they like, is this my fucking son? I didn't know it was you. No, it's it's over. You get it? They like, they didn't even talk to me. Like, right. I would pass them. It was a stranger's relation. My sister stopped talking to me. You know, I began. Yeah. But the point part was, I knew it was my conscience. Yeah, that's what I was trying to touch on earlier, yeah. That my mother and father since birth, even though I know Jesus and everything... They taught me respect, honesty. They taught yeah. me love. They taught me like, hey, you don't need all that. You get it? Yeah, yeah. That was in me, but I didn't understand it. So the confusion drove me to, to madness. I mean, it's still in you. No, it doesn't go away. No, it didn't. Yeah. It was still there. And yeah. I just didn't know it yeah. was driving me crazy because I knew I wanted to save somebody. But I couldn't save myself. So in that sorriness, I had seven open cases throughout, you know, for all the stuff. And I remember the judge. I went one day and I was just smoked out. Dirty, stinking. And the judge says, Tone, I can't do this no more. I know you're an addict. In that time, remember, programs are full, Rockets yeah. Island is full. She goes, I don't want to lock you up because you're not a real bad guy. You're just an addict. I just looked up like now because I couldn't even, I couldn't pick up my body. I was probably 80 pounds wet. I could no longer stand straight because I was sucked up, you know, my whole, no mm -hmm. one. I said, please give me a break. If you let me out, I'm going to rob somebody in front of the court. I needed to be saved. You were trying to incarcerate yourself. Yeah, I wanted to be saved. Yeah. I, I knew I couldn't save myself at that point. And she locked me up. And I went to Rockers Island. And now it's 86, 80, 80, 84, 85, 86, right? I'm in there just going in now as a drug dealer. Yeah. Then they sentenced me. When I went to Rockers Island, 88, there's this thing on there. It was different this time, Rockers Island. Because every time I went in, they had black power groups. Yeah. Like they had gangs, Muslims, God yeah. bodies. 
they had a white gangs. Nation of Islam. Nation of the whole lot. Yeah. That still was stronger. Mm. The Latino didn't have one. Yeah. And this dude named Luis Felipe, see, I just knew the name, started this thing called the Latin Kings in New York City in Collins Correctional Facility. It started in 86. In 88, it already did what gangs do within the prison. It fought the Muslims. It showed its power. And we started getting safe spaces for Latino Latin kings. And that Latino person is any Latino. Any Latino. Right. Central America, South America. Whatever. And kings, so you'll know what made us so uh, scary to the system, is non... It's got more rules about what's your sex life than where you're from and what color you are. So a Latin king could be any nationality, so any color, any religion. It, it doesn't want any homo... It's homophobic or... It's, it's homophobic. Right, okay. Because the power base was done in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in jail, if you're messing with homos, what are you? Yeah. You're not a, a strong yeah. crew. You get it? We and wanted you need those to be able bad. to fight all the things fight, that were on. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that's looked down upon. Yeah. And I mean, in prison, yet the gay movement, the gay rights, mm. and all those ferries with fist in New York yeah. didn't exist yet. Yeah. Everybody was still and scared. You, we all know as men, like today, you know that in that place there was... 10% were gay and they were probably covering it up what? or whatever. Yeah. Listen, I used to be in Rockers Island. I don't want to say because people get me. But I used to see power group guys yeah. be, and then sneak in the cells yeah. at night yeah, and get relieved. More and not that I judged them, but what yeah, I knew was, man, my people ain't ready yet yeah. to accept that truth. Get yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But what I happened was the kings attracted me in Rockers Island. The most thing that attracted me was that they were family. Yeah. Like you came in, they gave you a bag. So when I went in and I seen this brotherhood amongst them, I seen them gaining ground, making safe spaces for us. Mm -hmm. Our sneakers weren't getting taken no more. They were giving us the pride to fight back in jail. So in 1986, Luis Felipe, King Blood, created the Land Kings and the message got to me. In 1989, I hit the knee. That means I, I gave an oath to become a Land King. And I didn't know how to read. I didn't know how to write. And to be a Land King, you have to, it says there's no room in our nation for a stupid king. For a dumb king. Mm. So this manifesto's constitution, the yeah. prayer for the dead, you know, all kind of literature you have to learn. Yeah. And I told my guy who It's brought, a, still Catholicism right through yeah, it, right? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing that's crazy about kingism that was really crazy to me, it talks about the Torah. It talks about Santeria. Okay. It's a mixture yeah. of every religion. So you get the freedom to choose, right? Okay. So I was really like, wow. And they were talking about heroes and, and Lolita Labron and Oscar and the FLN and people that fought, the young yeah. ones, get it? They wrote something that school never told me that started telling me my identity. Not the gang identity. What made them small was as a group, they decided to share what we call the culture class. What does that mean? Culture class mean when they started telling me where I came from, why right. I came from, who was my heroes in Puerto, Puerto Rico, Rico. Okay, and yeah. how the Iraq Indians, yeah. how we were conquered. So right when I hit the knee, I become a king, I get knowledge. I kid you not, since 1986, I never felt or had the urge to do cocaine or crack again. Crack is hard to kick. Yeah, you, you, well, you, you. I've been in programs and did it all. You, you got off in prison. Where a lot of people get on it. With ten page, ten pages of literature, yeah, cured me. Oh, so the the actual no I, manifesto of of the, the, the land kings converted wow. my life. Okay, listen, if there's anything that I've ever had a personal experience one on one, that event like Paul in the Bible, yeah, was when I read the land king literature. So you come out a changed man. So I read it. I felt it. Yeah. Drugs is out of my system. Yeah. But in Rockers Island, I still watch 
and I seen the power and the numbers that we were growing, but we still had that violence cowboy mentality mm. that America taught us. That power in groups yeah. and violence. Yeah, and drugs and drugs, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The common Where's the money going to come from? You're all going to get jobs from? in the bank. Yeah. And remember, the kings weren't in the street yet. Nah. Okay. All was inside. All inside. Mm. So this was the big thing that happened. So all of a sudden, in 89, 90, 91, 92, guess who's coming to the streets? Mm. A bunch of guys that are organized, well-trained militarily, Beliefs. because we lived in the jail. But we have no clue how to transform this jail organization to what it was in Chicago, street organization. So now you're going to have the people who are out there going, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Yeah. And then you're going to have the dudes that are, the people that they tell him, what the fuck you think you're doing, saying, we're doing what we taught you. In Rockers Island, you get out of place, you get punished. Yeah. Somebody fucks with us, they kill one of us, we hurt five of them. You get it? So they were still living but under now the... now we're having a civil war. Because jail mentality against yeah. in a free world. And I come out in 91. And I knew Luis Felipe through letters. And yeah. of course, I was there like four years. Mm. And I, I've, I put enough work and knowledge into the Kings that he knew my name. And when he knows your name, you know, your favorite. Yeah. He knew me enough to know that I fixed jails for him. Again, right. I knew how to go in. So one of my first thing in jail was... You used to visit him in jail, presumably? No. I never, I've never touched... Really? Okay. Felt or seen Luis Felipe, my leader, really? who's tattooed on my arm, okay. until he went to court in 1996 to face 145 years in jail. And I seen him from the other, on the bench, and he was on the sitting down as... So just to show, so now I got the understanding, I got a little power from him, he sends me to the street, and it's funny because I land in the street. I got big black and golds. I call them bumblebees. Yeah, yeah. I wanted the world to know that Tom was no longer a crackhead. Yeah. But then when I got home, I realized that my mother went, so now you're not a crackhead. Now you're a gangbanger. Get it? So I thought I found salvation and yeah. she clearly cleared it up. And the same day I got released, this is a true story. She said, and if you got that shit on your neck, you got to leave my house. The tats, you mean? The, I oh, didn't no, have the, tats oh, the, gold, the, the gold, colors. The gold, yeah, yeah. She sent me out, and I swear to God, I walked three blocks moping. I didn't know where I was going to live. And there by a corner phone was three Latin kings. And I looked on Jerome and Pink. I never forget. I walked over there, and they go, you king? Yeah, we do a Samuel de Rey. He go, what's up? I just came home. So they test me. Yo, what's your five? You know, you, you got to know your stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. you just can't walk in the hood and not know and say. So they tested me. He said, okay, you know. You were a big noise, by the way, at this stage. They probably didn't know that, did they? Yeah. Nah, nah. And that's where I was quiet. And then yeah. they did their check. Like, they called blood, of course. You know, yeah. the yo, this new dude named Tone is out here, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know? It was so funny because he told him, yeah, put him next to Teardrop. And that was the dude running my gang at that time. Wow. So now I just got paration. I'm carrying two guns. I wake up 8 o'clock in the morning. I take that dude to his job. He sells, you know, hats and stuff for a Chinese guy. Okay. That low... I was eight hours watching him work, making sure he was all right. Then when I was finished with him, I would go to the second highest ranking official in the Land Kings, and she was a lady, and she would sleep, and I would sit out all night, make sure nobody goes to the house. That was my job. You don't have to answer this if you don't want. Did you ever do drugs again? No, I'm not going to. I drunk beer. I tapped, but you were I completely off it from when you got out of prison. That yeah, day. I was complete. You know, touch marijuana. Relapse you know, like you, yeah, you yeah, people yeah. tell I touch a joint. You know amazing, what I learned? One of the things I've, I've, as soon as I became a king, 
I learned there's some non-negotiables, goddammit. And before you tell somebody else a non-negotiable, mm-hmm. you better be able to show them the non-negotiable. Walk your talk. Yeah. Walk your so talk. I said, while I was doing all that, you hear me? I had to keep a job to keep my parole from arresting me. So a lot of people know this. King Tone always held a legal job. Yeah. Why he ran the Latin King Nation of New York what did you for work eight at? years. I worked for Brian Lynn as a, a mailroom manager. Right, okay. I worked for MTV, okay. also in the mailroom curb. Right. I worked for Studio 54 Amazing. as a busboy. But I always was in major spots. Life brought me to special places where I seen special things happen. So Studio 54 opened my mind to, yeah. to that world. Get it? The dancing, the yeah. cocaine, party, yeah. cocaine. Yeah, yeah. You get it? Mm. I just had a world of knowledge. And, and I seen it, and again, I didn't want that. You get it? So yeah. when I, I finally come out of jail, I got a, a, a sense of me, and I got a sense of the kings. But I know something's wrong. Right. Why? Because my brothers are acting like they're still in jail. And that's when it hit me. So me and Blood behind the lines says, what's going on? I said, you know what, brother? This shit is not, not cool. You get yeah. it? We're doing crazy shit, and yeah. I don't know how you don't think they're watching us, get it? I mean crazy shit. Right, okay. If you see the first indictment, right. you know, guys' heads chopped off, hands okay. burned. You know, I'm just okay. saying, it, yeah. real gruesome. It's it, inter-gang, or is it inter Inter-gang. Inter-gang. We got no enemies. Everybody's scared of us. Right. The only one they, that ain't scared of us is us. So, Lewis so it's thought, internal fighting. Yeah, because we're new. We're the new cowboys yeah, on the block. Yeah. A lot of money now, what and power. They, what did the Panthers think of you? Well... The, everybody disliked the kings, even though everybody else accepted uh, interracial kings and everything. New York did. We wanted only Latins because we were at war with the black gangs, so we thought that would infiltrate us. Everybody seen that as racial, but it was a defense mechanism because the guys we were warned. It is very disappointing in hindsight, though, that the kings and the panthers weren't able to go. Hey, we're kind of in this fucking shit together. But check it out. Okay. There's, so then I come home, I see the discord, and I see the chain of command, and we had an evil leader. You know, like you, you go through King, yeah. one of your back kings? Yeah, yeah. And the public hated him. Right. And he tortured them. And my friends and some of my kings started disappearing, and we didn't know why. And you know when the leader tell, oh, don't worry, we just send them to... Yeah, we look after him. Because everybody swears that every gang member knows everything that happens in the gang, which is a lie. 90% of the time, you don't find out about something really serious, because 90% of the time in the gang, it happens spontaneously. It's very rare that they plan it. Yeah. That's a revenge thing, but usually it pops off. Yeah. So I'm seeing all this madness, and, I, and I'm hearing from those that are scared, yo, it's, it's them killing us. You know, that them being the, our yeah. bosses. So once I roll blood, and I say, yo, I don't know what's going on, but I'll tell you this, what's sweet to your mouth is going to be sour to your stomach. You got a bunch of crazy niggas running this. Let me get next to her, with the, with the lady that was in charge, and let me start using my what I did in jail, how I formed, you know, group. He said, go ahead. And I said, don't tell nobody I work for you. Mm. Yeah, I didn't want them to know. So I was an underground consultant. And slowly, I started going to different boroughs in New York, listening to the guy that was quiet, that was scared. And I started working within them without the leaders knowing. And I started raising circles of leaders within. And just, I'm with blood. Mm-hmm. Just tell me what's going on. So I know what's going on in your circle. Get it? Yeah. And as I gathered information... I started building a system for him. So I seen that we were loud and proud, but didn't have nothing going for ourselves. I seen that we had leaders that were all into criminal behavior, but our guys that were into good, you know, jobs and stuff. Community stuff, stuff yeah. We, we downgraded them. And lastly, was we were broke. 
We were fucking broke. Yeah. So I talked to the Lord, so I set the first thing in stage. And I'm going to show you, so when I start my process to fight these bad leaders, I got a, a mob of good guys now. You know yeah. when good fights bad. But tooled up. Yeah, you know, we, we know what we got to do. And I remember I wake up one day and my, my niece wakes me up and, I, and I'm a king, right? I go, what's up, Cindy? She goes, read the paper. So this is like, come on, 91, now 9 by 4, the grand indictment hits. They pick up 32 of Latin kings, king blood. Yeah. They get him for sending to kill seven members. Yeah. They got all 2,000 letters he's been writing to everybody. Right. So they pick up. How I, tell, I tell this story because everybody gives this credit to King Tone. Like he took over the nation. He fought for it. Yo, sometimes the planets align and everything's perfect for a star to be born. Now it's up to that star to take the opportunity to shine. So all your enemies were lifted. They fucking picked them up, except wow. a couple. So now me and my crew of good... It's now reversed. They, Amazing. And not that we wanted them to go. No, I know. But yeah. it, it saved the Civil War. Yeah. Of us having to get the dude. So everybody they picked up wasn't battle involved, but they were part of that, so they got in it. Yeah. So I said, me and my crew sat down and we said, fuck. So the nation that, what, by 94 was at 3,000 members, right? Small. Mm. Jailing out. A little small structure of organization turned to about 200 of us after right. that guy's leadership. Yeah. Now we got blood in jail. We got their whole leadership. And there's a void. And the call comes from MCC. You know, the word they say, yo, King Blood wants to talk to you. I got on the phone. He goes, yo. You know, in Spanish, in Cuba, they say, ponte palo tuyo. That means... Ponte palo tuyo. Ponte palo tuyo. Go do what you got to do. Right. I said, Tell me what happened when those guys got put into prison with blood. So the 32 of them got indicted, federally indicted on a RICO charge. Murder, conspiracy, and drug yeah. selling, three major felons. There were almost seven murders, four of them were proved, king on king crime. Satire. Yeah, yeah. You're reading that you were killing no, each no. other again. We had While a you do it, you don't notice it, but when you read who yeah. you become. Well, any countryman killing. So, right there, I seen the indictment. I, blood is now counseling me. My guy, Gano, who's next to Blood, who went on the, you know, who raised me, the guy I first saw, mm. he got picked up too. But he was a good guy. He was supporting me on the change. So when Blood talked to me, I said, I'll do this. But you got to let me do it my way. Right. Call me. You could scream at me, curse at me, call me a bitch-ass nigga. Yeah. Send niggas to kill me. But don't bother the people. Okay. They're hurt. They're destroyed right now. They're scared of you. And I'm going to bring you back, your people. I'm going to make sure that when you go to that fucking trial, you ain't gonna feel There's gonna be no. supporters there. Yeah. Yo, I know you don't got a mother. I know in Cuba you didn't have a father. I know you went to grow up jail at 12. Mm. I know how you told me they beat you. Just let me run it. I'll never, ever take your place. That's yours. You're my founder. He said, I trust you, Tongo. go. And that's when I started. So the first thing I did was took the lessons, mm -hmm. got scholars. We read them more than just look at them like we usually, we read our literature. And we started pulling out things like week of the sun, which is in March 1st, the first week we fast from morning to night. And it's a day that you, like Muslim, you only study, yeah. then, then you break it with your brothers. Mm -hmm. Then there was this thing called universals. And I said, what the fuck is universal? Mm -hmm. When we're reading, it's where we were, we were supposed to meet once a month, all of us to talk monthly issues. And they had the prayers, so I said, this is it. Let's do what this shit says. 
Let's create holidays. Make it a religion, yeah. So now we know every March of every year. Yeah, I've been at it. You know, there's yeah. a blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, so we start planning how we're going to do this universal. So then what I teach, I wasn't scared to let outside influences in. Because I figured it this way. If you come in and you steal one of my members by preaching the nation of Islam, yeah. he wasn't a king from the get. Get it? Yeah. Take who you can take. But you're building a foundation with me that we're becoming knowledgeable. So a father named Luis Barrios, Dave Brotherton, who's a, a Londonite, he approached me. He was like, he was a white mm. boy. Yeah. So in the midst of me figuring this out, you know, I'm making changes. People are hearing like, there's this little dude yeah. fucking in the street doing some crazy shit, man. Yeah, I yeah. just, you should go check him, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the point that I hated, everybody that came to check me came with a agenda. Like Sharpton, oh, change your name and your stuff. And then all the Black Panthers, hey, if you join. Everybody wanted me to join them. Yeah. And I had this fucking pride about the Latin Kings that I made sure I said, wherever we go, we'll change everything. But, but we're I staying did. as kings. That's our past, our baggage. Fucking America killed every Native American Indian. They fucking slave blacks. Yeah. They never changed their name. No, no. They never said sorry. Yeah. They never said forgive us. They just said let's carry on. That's our past. But there was an inherent now suddenly understanding between the different races in America that we're getting fucked here. Yeah, we knew it. You all agreed with that. So finally. now, right. now remember, our heroes were killed, the Martin Luther Kings, the yeah. Black Panther now, the new Black Panther collective. Yeah. It's a little different time. And all them people that were down with that movement, they did a disservice to the community. And I talked to all those that marched with Martin Luther King and all of them after they killed our great leaders, they went and hid. They went and used yeah. personal problems to say they didn't talk to him. Jesse Jackson didn't talk to Al Sharpton. Nation of yeah. Islam wouldn't talk to this. And it, it was so fractured. Yeah. You know what I did? And it was publicly fractured as well. They left to bring one guy on and say, what do you man said this? You, yeah, so yeah. The, the, the news would put us at each other. Yeah. Ted Talk, I did that shit 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Ted yeah. Talk ain't new to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once I got to church, yeah. I told him, so now every 30 days, we're going to throw a party. And in this party, we feed them. We have speakers, rap shows, yeah. uh, King of the Month, Tribe of the Month. Yeah. You know, we create all kinds of So houses. it's becoming a community thing. But the money that you're getting for these parties is coming from... All kind of different ways. Okay. We got nothing. Yeah. But I'm, I knew... I'm, I'm obliquely suggesting that there was still narcotics and all that no, stuff. No, there's still narcotics, but we're not rich. We're selling drugs to eat. Yeah. Okay. Get it? You, what? Yeah, not yeah, like yeah. when I had the 600000 Yeah, yeah. Now I've seen hustlers that were immediately had to use the money. So when we, when we took the church, that's why I say you first build a community. When I started doing the meetings, mm. I started introducing them to outside influences. You got the church on side. You made Lewis Bodies, look, I got, you know how I connected it? I got the church on 126 in Amsterdam that used, it's yeah, across the street in Black Harlem, yeah, yeah. that used to hide the guns for the Black Panthers. Right. So Reverend George, you see, safe spaces have to have a historical value. So it was the church, not because I was holy, I just want to teach you little crazy motherfuckers there was something bigger than you. Well, around this time, there is a priest, uh, I read, uh, who, call, who was calling you possibly a prophet. Luis Barrios. Luis Barrios, That's yeah. his church. Yeah. He was a rev. So when he seen my first meeting, my first time that yeah. King Tony introduced the uni, I think maybe 4,000 people came. Really? And check it out. It wasn't only kings. The kings brought their wives, their mother, yeah. which we would call outsiders. So in the church, I said, Everyone's everybody's welcome. welcome. Yeah. Don't search nobody no more. There was a unique part of the church too. What was beautiful about it? 
the fucking precinct was across the street. I'm go- that's exactly where I was going to go next because we have to start bringing in the other part of this and one of the quotes you had which was you know so somebody called you a gangster with a PR campaign which I quite like that it's kind of funny but you said in retaliation not in retaliation that we never think about the crimes the cops are fucking making okay the last few years it's all over the place because we've all got a camera that we can fil- start filming you see it now. we see it now but it was always that way. No, it was that way. So in my power... And Giuliani's on it, on the case right now with his broken windows and his anti-graffiti and fair... So dodges. I was right there. And you're there, there. So now I'm there, right? Yeah. I just had the first uni. Yeah. I got a professor now that's standing with me. I got to preach. I let the outside influence in. They had congregations. They had friends who I said, invite them in. So then all of a sudden, the Nation of Islam wanted to come talk. I talked in the Day of Atonement with Farrakhan with 12 mothers whose sons were killed by cops and I got them on the stage with Mr. Farrakhan right, right. in front of the United Nations. I marched with Lolita Labron which is LFLN who shot up the Senate House for the freedom of Yekes in Puerto Rico being a, yep. a territory for the United States. When she came home after doing 25 years she said tell King Tone I want him to be my security. You know what an honor it was? Yeah. She was a hero to me. She fought the Marines on the beach with Aviso Campo. See, these are names I didn't even used to know. But you had done your study on your history. Because I was in jail and yeah. I didn't want to waste. I've, I read some old articles from the just before we met. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of time. But the cops were clearly puzzled by all this. They, yeah. did, they didn't seem... They go, what the fuck is he doing? What is he doing? Yeah. Why is he doing Why is he not... Can, yeah. So right when I got the universals, it takes track. We're mm-hmm. getting 4,000, 5,000, 7,000. Yeah. Rhode Island, Florida, Connecticut, mm. Texas, Colleen. People were coming to the, to the universe from other states. So the first message was for me was, right, I was lost. We had the community now. We knew how to self-invest. I taught them how to do the Grito Reyes. It's a paper. Right. We came out with a, a, a weekly paper. Yeah. And every king that cut hair had a business advertised in it. Yeah. So every month we showed the people where to go to put their money back with each other. Yeah. There was Good mandatory shots. t-shirts yeah. that I made. Merch. So I made Merch. 500 t-shirts and I made one for Brooklyn, one for Manhattan. Then I made... 200, I used to tell Lita, you bought this already because they can't come here without that. Right. That's the bulletin board. Yeah, yeah. And it brings money in, in so there. now yeah. the cops are in. Yeah. And Giuliani's mad because something happened. And this is how it, Miss Byers is a lady from the Bronx. It's a famous case. You can look it up. This cop named Lavodi. The kids were playing football, two, three brothers. His yeah. name is Anthony Byers. Yeah. The football hits the car. It's a famous case. It's one of the first biggest ones. Yeah. Lavodi's with the sergeant, so he tries to improve. It's right in front of the mother, father in the porch. He argues because the football hit the car. He got so enraged that he started holding the kid, which turned to a scuffle, and the famous chokehold happened. And Anthony Baez dies. Yeah. He kills him in front of the mother, father. So make it long after the university, I got the traction. The pastors, the government, none, nobody will help these 33 mothers that while Giuliani was mayor, their sons were killed suspiciously by cops. Mm. Nobody would stand with them. So when they went to rally, it was 12, 33 mothers, you know, to speak. Cops would laugh. So one day she called for me. They said, go to the Bronx. There's this lady you want to see. Right. And look at the amazing. Her son was named Tony. Like mine. Yeah, yeah. So I real quick, I went to see Miss Biden. And she was like, yo, so I need you. And I said, what's up? She said, nobody's helping me. Could you help me with the keys? And I was like, yeah. She said, I'm going to meet your other mothers. But we got one problem. I said, what's up? Because I was, now we needed a cause. You get it? Yeah. I didn't have a cause yet. Yeah. I had the remedy of healing. Yeah. But I said, we need a cause. And when that mother told me to support her, it gave me an identity. Yeah. Police brutality. Yeah. No justice, no peace. That was our yeah. model. So I told her, we with you. You know, I was on light because I was already seeing fame. You know what I'm going. Mm-hmm. 
And when she told me, but I don't want you to make this about the kings. Okay. This is about our sons. Okay. You know, and they hit me. God humbled me. He said, mm. see, you ready to show off, nigga. <laughs> so I told her yes. The first rally she threw, she told me, bring some people. I said, we be there. So I remember I get there. King's always late. You know, yeah. we street guys. Yeah. So I'm there about 6 o'clock. The cops got two little barriers. It's in front of the 48th precinct. I see them giggling. The mother's there again feeling hurt. And there's like 12 of us there. And she's disappointed, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm a little scared because this is my first time organizing and rally. promoting yeah. a rally mm-hmm. that's nonviolent. So real quick, before I brought them there, I brought two, two Marines. And I brought the Black Panther Collective and Reverend Torty to teach us crowd control, crowd incitement. Yeah. How to look for CIs within the crowd that throw bricks to incite mm-hmm. the kings. Yeah. Get it? Yeah. So we learned to be disciplined. Then I put them out there. And when I came out there, there was only a few of us, and I was praying, and I kid you not. Then like 7.30, every fucking train that stopped Packed. in that station and fucking car that park were kings. So about in an hour and a half, we had close to already like 1,900 people. Then we start marching down Fordham Road. So the Puerto Rican people in a Puerto Rican community yeah. see me call down from the Bronx Supreme Courthouse. I closed down because we were marching the 48, the, the precinct. It was thousands of thousands of wow. people. Bro. I can't explain it. Mm. Helicopters with the light, yeah. the cops the on news. the roof. You yeah. know, because yeah. they finally said, he's here. This dude is real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of Where was blood and all this? Was he? He's in jail yeah, now. No, but, is, but is he giving? He's yeah. He's blood. like, cause this is him. Yeah. Fuck! I'm going to trial, and I ain't got one thing to yeah. say that's good about me. Yeah, yeah. You're doing it now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm building him his defense. But he was. He agreed with what you were trying to do, right? Fucking 100%. all day. hundred yeah. percent. So I won him over. So at the end, with all these kids there, I remember the helicopters and my. The public is scared. Yeah. Cause Miss Byers talk. I never seen. The mothers and those fathers, I cried they so proud. powerful. They were proud, yeah, yeah. They fucking talked for the first time no, on respect. the mic. It's actually, a, a lot of these things are about fucking just basic respect. They, me, they wanted to be heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they finally seen the police instead of laughing with yeah. fear in their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, this is a true story. The father, Mr. Bias, comes to me says, it was he said, I'm tired of being laughed. He had a gun, this father, and he was going to do something to a cop. Because you know how regular people want to prove to a gangster they, they yeah, would do tough. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, Mr. Bias. I won't t- be doing that today, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I said, Mr. Bias, give me that. Don't worry. We're going to shoot them like they've never been shot before. Yeah, yeah. And he looked at me. So then we had everything to rally. The cops were scared. They, like I said, the guns in the roof and the people were looking again. So I called my call. Lion information! And my kings automatically know. They were taught. They made a circle. Within a circle, with a circle, thousands of kids doing circle without people talking. And now you see the media and everyone. They fucking know how to do cadences. Look, they yeah, march and they're yeah. doing right. So we made a circle, long story. And again, because I used to love to show the public because I knew as a, like you said, I knew on TV and everything. Nothing seems so crazy when you see a thousand gangsters get on their right knee, throw up a crown, and say a prayer to God while guns are pointed at them. And that's when I stood up, I said, it's quite clear who's the aggressor here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite clear. Was Gandhi an important guy in your life? Did you find read about him? Gandhi. The writings, actual writings of Martin yeah. Luther King, Mandela, Malcolm, of course. 
other many authors I got into. Yeah, yeah. But I I mastered Gandhi's. Yeah, Gandhi was, touched me with the nonviolent move. It's very strong. Smart man. Yeah. He knew how it's to, way to handle cops. Um, are we now coming to the time when you went back yeah. into the Nick? That's back to jail. Yeah. No, right. Irish. I want to show you why Giuliani came okay, against. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So in that time, Giuliani. This had is his a new. Yeah, fucking Giuliani game. thinking. Yeah. This fucking kid it's is saying. Bollocks, right? It, that's bullshit, really. The, the the broken windows thing is not. No, that was what I was saying. Yeah. It's it was it was fake. Two or three guys yeah. in the corner. They stop you. Yeah. They beat you. They take you. They yeah. humiliate. Throw you on the floor. You know, just humiliate yeah. you. Yeah. So I was against it. So what finally happened? Like I told you, I got the Zulu Nation, the Bloods. I got the Nietas. I got all the gangs of New York to meet with me and I'll shop this place. Mm. We made a treaty. Mm. And we formed the United Families Coalition. And that was the first brutality movement that we did as a group against Giuliani. And we came out on TV and told him, you're a liar, you're a piece of shit. I used to call him and uh, Bratton Pinky in the Brain. (laughs) Have you ever seen the cartoon? Yeah. And it's Pinky in the Brain, Pinky in the Brain, one's a genius, one's a saint. And I sang that in front of City Hall. And he found out that I was someone that he had to fear. Did you ever meet him? No, I, I, what I did to him, I got this close to him. He told me, spit, I'm crossing my T's and dotting my I's and you'll be in jail in six months. You know what I did on a Christmas he meeting? He told you that? Yeah, right in front, because he was lying the Christmas tree. City Hall was lying, giving free coffee. What he didn't know, I had 800. The mother's... All dressed, no black and gold, no signs. And he was throwing his Christmas party, and they thought they were going to have fun. And I put my whole membership on the line where he was going to come and pull the switch for the tree. Yeah, yeah. And when he came to do it, all of a sudden, I I was on a tree. I remember climbed up a high tree because nobody could see me. When I was there, they knew there was going to be a rally. Yeah. From the tree, I blew the whistle. And you seen the mothers, each son come up. And him and his wife had to pass each fucking murder victim. Great. Great. And it was war after that. Yeah. How dare you come to my house and yeah. embarrass me? Yeah. He said, they got me out the tree. <laughs> gang. So the gang force became friends with me to show you. The good yeah. cops, they were like, this is great, but you know, get me in trouble. Man. <laughs> yeah. Fuck them out of here. All of y'all. Yeah. So I had a unit. So we became a battle. Me and Giuliani became a battle. And it wasn't a, bad, a battle about he's a mayor or like you said. It was that this man was giving medals to people who shot innocent kids without yeah. guns. Yeah. And he was oppressing our people. And he was lying that crime went down without him. The reason crime went down is because the public got wise to that drug crack mm. and dope. And we reverted back to weed, yeah. which got the kids medal. And fun. there's also a theory that uh, the, the abortion law that came in because suddenly lots of potentially broken home kids didn't get born. You know, also made the they, they came in hard. Yeah. So after that, we battled, and that's when Giuliani set a case to get me next after blood. And within the years, like I said, I always told the public, we didn't change. We're trying to change. Yeah. But how could I change if I took away all their guns and you didn't give me one job? Mm. They asking for their guns back. <laughs> get yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And that's when me and Giuliani went to war, and that war ended with him. Getting me an indictment, the biggest indictment in New York City history. I was the number one man wanted in New York City. Didn't have a car, couldn't, didn't have a license, was broke. And Were you I going was from still house to house and all stuff like that? Were you jumping? Yeah, of course. Because landlords would throw me out after <laughs> yeah. they seen everybody that comes. Mm. So I was, I looked powerful on TV, but very much powerless in the sense of community value. Yeah, yeah, Get yeah. it? So when he got me, he got they charged me with conspiracy to be a lookout to a drug sale. 
130 co-defendants. None of them a murder case. Raided us 4.30 in the morning, all of us, me first. Not one kilo of cocaine, not one gun out of 130 gang leaders was found. Right. Now you can't fake that. We didn't know you were coming. It's that my leaders was changed, you get it? The whole yeah. leadership changed. They got me. They gave me, because of my three past felonies, I was looking at 40 to life. So then the my partner, they took her to Turner State's witness, and they made a lie and gave her money. So then I got brothers and a priest to find a safe house. My wife. Your the wife. Mo- the mother of my child. Not now. I brought her back, stole her from the safe house, brought her in with all the receipts and the lies they told her today. The, not, the judge, I swear, hit the thing. He said, y'all better talk about a deal because this is going to get ugly. And they offered me 13 years. And you say, Tom, how could you take 13? Because I knew they were going to kill me. I yeah, knew yeah, they were going to sink me under the, like blood. Yeah. 145 years, never to see a human being. So the DA didn't know when she offered it, I usually go to trials because I went five state trials and two feds and I beat them. But I never had co-defendants. Now I had 130. 30 of them turned informants immediately. Right. So I want to tell that to most power groups. That loyalty shit and all that ends when you get to the federal court. It is you who eats you. It is you yeah. who tells on you. So when I seen that whole man, they gave me 13 years for that conspiracy to be a lookout. We're in 99 now, yeah? Yeah, 99, 98. They give me 13 years and they give me three without human contact, 23-hour lockdown, where one, I was considered a low in prison because I had no points. I had no violence in my record, just drug sales. And I was in every so you're worst- in solitary for three years. Three years, no human contact. And then they put me, the rest of my bed in penitentiary. what that was like. You're it's, in a tiny room and they throw the food under the door to you. Don't no, they got a, like, a, a flap. Opens a middle door. Yeah. So I wrote in a book, of that experience and I call the slot that they open to feed yeah. you I said I find myself in my mother's womb but it's not a flesh and bone of steel and rock and in this womb I get fed through the very hole that I breathe and I see that I, I, I look for the freedom you know I placed it yeah. I really took a look at my brand even though I was successful I was in there as a political prisoner I really didn't recognize that I had some real screwed up still understanding of what was an activist, of what was really right, right. 100%. But you're getting up every day, you walk, you're pacing the thing, just got you. So, what I do. Do you have books and stuff that you. So, you get one book every three days. So, I've, I've been through a book card you, twice. You, yeah, you, you memorized read the same them. ones, menace pages. But what I did was I had. Did you see any humanity? Did you see any acts of human kindness from your jailers ever yes yeah okay I'm gonna clear that you know so people know it's like anywhere in the world dudes see me on TV that was CEOs and they was done like fucking good job to him he's that extra pillow he's a little blank I know dude is punishing you yeah. then the one that come at night open my cell and throw oh, you fucking you think you're a king you ain't getting no phone calls get it but it taught me that aspect not all cops are bad not all Muslims are bad. You don't get. Yeah, yeah. I've learned that it's life. You're gonna have mm. good and bad and mm. everything. Yeah. So my philosophy on that change, they're all pigs. They're all evil. Mm. So I learned to support the good one, and go after the bad. You get it? Yeah. Like I want it done to my kings. Yeah. When you vote for the bad guy, leave mm. the good guys alone. You know yeah. they're not involved. Yeah. So I learned to be still, and let God be God. So when you became a king and I became such a great leader, I did thought you I get had suicidal? Did you ever think of ending it? Yo, and I'm not going to lie, I, I, I couldn't, because the, the, when I was suicidal was when I was a crackhead. 
But I knew damn well why I was in that cell. 13 years is a long time. But you... listen, that was the proudest I ever been yeah, in my yeah, fucking I get life. It. I get it, I get it. I knew everything they were doing to me it wasn't because I saw the bottom yeah, crack. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't because I killed nobody. It's because I Control. put the fear of God in the mm. motherfuckers. You know, the system yeah, finally man. heard the youth in New York State say, we don't like this and we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. I think America has caused and called many wars. The war on drugs, the war on gangs, the war on crime. Yeah. Did you ever hear him say the war on poverty? No. What president had the balls to say war on poverty? Get it? Mm-hmm. So I know the misdirection of the energy towards our youth. Mm. The adults have now made laws and circumstances where our youth that mm. are poor, if you're white, black, or if you're poor... 90% you're going to touch something in clear. I'm also intrigued as well by the fact that revenge is obviously a huge code thing in violence and gangs and Chicago exactly. exactly and you seem to have even from when you were young been able to temper that because it's a, it is actually very unhealthy emotion to, to let eat because it eats you as well so I told my kids that I said when you take something that precious, that isn't yours to take, you also inherit it. That soul you stole yep. from that body, you think it's going to heaven or hell, it's going straight in your motherfucking mind and heart. For the rest of your life, yeah. And the motherfuckers were in the shoe with me 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And they used to tell me. You get it? All those people I hurt for whatever reason I thought I was so right when I was right. They were there with you still. They never leave you, mm. and they never leave you alone. And you don't. I'm saying I killed them, but I was part of a team that seen these things yeah. and knew. And and in my heart, I was guilty because I could have prevented some of it yeah. if I just had the courage mm-hmm. to speak up. Get it? You came out in 2007. I want to talk to you a little bit about Trump and all the bullshit that's going okay. on now. But just to finish your story, you you set up. Grow up, grow out. I want you to talk a little bit about. So that. after the three years, yeah. solitary confinement. So I in that solitude. I found the courage to start writing. And I, I thought about Grow Up, Grow Out. And the reason I say Grow Up, Grow Out, because I believe that power groups, I don't call them gangs, are just like the Boy Scouts in college and everything. They're the immediate response and need to a person in help in their, in their poor poverty neighborhood. But what I'm trying to show them, it doesn't supposed to be forever. It ain't Peter Pan world, goddammit. Yep. The gang is just a part of your life like anybody else's. Mm. When they go to high school, they go to... You grow up out of that shit. Yeah. So you might be a gangbanger in primitive stage. This yeah. is what I teach. Then you go to the conservative stage yeah. where you say, damn, I'm doing a lot of stupid shit. I just don't want to be down with it. Yeah. So you're really confused so you don't even report to the gang. Yeah. And then you go to the new king stage. You're comfortable in your skin. Yeah. You're comfortable being a king. But you understand that it doesn't have to involve criminal activity. Yeah. That I can have my wife, my son, and yeah. hey, I'm more than ready. Yeah. And keep walking and don't have to duplicate or act like those that still didn't find that path of growing up and going out. Now, a lot of people have leveled, you're just, that's just bullshit. You're just trying to cover for, for, for something. You know, there are people are, it's, I love reading some of the New York Times articles about you because they can't get their head around it. Now, there's something, there's a trick here. There's a trick with this guy. He's up to something. Can and, I you're not, and you're not. What prophet? Yeah, exactly. What man that brought a good message was never looked at yeah. by the Pharisees, by the government, as suspicious, as connected. Remember. The late, great JC. You know what I've learned? The, the law was written by the first man who broke it. 
very good. I learned that what they were teaching me was what I needed to know to hold me down. Is that when I, I learned to be free? I learned the steps that I use in my marketing. So a perfect example, HBO and all that, do you see? Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know that like TED Talks, and they could test this. You go to all my members, all that shit was scripted. I fooled prime time. They slept with me six months, and they didn't know I was pulling skids on them. Not because I was fake. Yeah. How the fuck am I going to take prime time when I'm rolling up on guys that are selling drugs, and I'm preaching this message? Yeah, yeah. Shit, somebody could get killed. But I knew I was doing it, so I knew how to make it like they do now, how to script it. So I would put kings as bloods and all that and show them what I was doing, but it wasn't the real thing. They came to destroy me. I said, there's going to be negative. Mm. But when the fucking kings see me on TV, a thousand dethroned it, seeds are going to be planted everywhere. And sure enough, they came begging for interviews. And that's my brother. We put skits on. That had prime time, hard copy, everybody playing, like these kids are this. Yeah. And me and my boys are laughing. That look at people still hate me about those things. And when me and my brothers tell me we're scared, they still can't believe it. They said, no, that was real. Until they I really show them, and when they see the guys in the red light, they say that's Nova. <laughs> so you see the dumb motherfucker. Because it was a it was dangerous for me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I made them understand. I'm fucking using the machine. Yes. Against them. What is your right 2017? What is the core of your message. Because I know you want to help young people. The grow up, grow out is, hey, get over yourself. What, what, what is your core message to Hispanic Americans in this time of fucking Donald <coughs> Trump and to, the, to a young kid who is like you were, who's maybe tonight staring up at the stars because he's had his first drink somewhere in Brooklyn? I tell you, don't turn a moment into a lifetime. Turn a lifetime into moments. And what I mean by that is live your life simple and slow. And I teach kids that it's all right to be a kid. And I teach the parent to accept the failure as a learning mechanism that all kids did in the history of the world to get where they are, right? Love, respect, honesty, unity, knowledge and love. Build a community. Don't be afraid to let other people come in and help you. And then the last thing I tell them, act, goddammit. Puerto Ricans, Blacks, Latinos, Mexicans, y'all all caught up in these little groups and this uh, Black Lives Matters, women's rights against Trump. It doesn't mean shit till y'all get together. So this is what United's family's model was. Agree to disagree. If I don't dig, why are you taking me to that rally like it isn't in our, in our structure of who we are? We'll send representatives, not the whole contingency. To show condolence and unity yeah. and the right as a gay yeah. You have to be here, yeah. like the kings do. But I don't bring us all because you know we don't believe in the lifestyle. But we won't talk against you in the media. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? We don't yeah, go with yeah. the faggot. Yeah, you yeah, get it? Yeah, yeah. I taught my... I think America is more racist today than it was in 1980. Of course. Let me tell you why. President Trump is the reflection of what America's presidents were always made to be, businessmen. I don't believe the Declaration of Independence, all of that was written for us, the people. We wasn't people then. We were property. It was written by businessmen creating a country on business built on the backs of people they considered nobodies. It it evolved. But my point is, so we had this articulate brown man named President Obama. Mm. And for a black man to win that prestigious spot, they told us 
A president is classy. He talks right. He's not a racist. That office holds this prestige about it that it changes you. And here comes Trump saying, fuck that, I'm a cowboy. And that black did a lot of shit Mm. that we got to erase because this is our country. But the problem is that that prick got the beaten down person to vote for him. You know what I called it? I mean, quite a... You know what I called it, people? The white whip. And let me make it explain. Remember the slave got whipped? I get it, yeah. So the white whip was the same inspirational message, Trump ain't a dummy, that Obama used to wake up the college kid, the the downwritten like me, the gangster that went and voted for the first time because they seen somebody that talked like them, looked like them, act like them. We believed in his message as a black man in hope. Trump gave that same hope to the same kind of people, but they were white. What I'm saying, that were forgotten. Because there's a lot of white people in America sure. that are living in trailers yeah. that don't got money. Yeah. So America isn't about black racism. It's about rich racism. Yeah. It's about money racism. I see some white people that they treat like black people. They don't got noise. They don't got money. No. You get it? They, they become a... No, a I mean, to, to me, the word is the, the, the world, not just America, inequality is getting out of fucking control. It was always there, but it was under the carpet. Pushed out, as you said, you took the place of a ghetto when the Irish fucked off out of it, when we made a few money building houses. The Jamaicans had to come in when the Ricans got to a point, right? Exactly. But you know what? No one goes over there. That's for all the fucking poor people. That's right. And that is starting to get back on agendas, and people are starting to get fucking upset about it. And I think, I was going to ask you, do you think that we're going to have a tipping point? Do you think that we're going to... You know, someone said that maybe it's the end of the end. Maybe what we're experiencing now is the end of the end. Maybe Trump is like that fucking, the darkest hour is the, dar- is the hour. Because if there's one thing he's done, he's got a lot of people fucking pissed off. No, and it's good, right? In a good way. No, of course, we need it. Yeah. A wake-up call, right? Yeah. But I don't think Trump is the worst of the worst yet. You mean there's more to come? There's more to come because yeah. as all the good books show you, the Hebrews, when they were under Pharaoh became complacent like Puerto Rico we don't need a president just give us man we, we want to be a state yeah. please keep giving us welfare yeah. keep giving us you know we become dependent on our owners so that's the sad point that I think darker because right now I'm calling for a cry right my plan is to call for a cry for all the power groups in the United States of America right now I got all the founders of the Bloods the Crips of the major gangs I'm talking to them imagine if we had in New York and, and, and we go to D.C. With all the power groups in America, a million of them in front of the White House flying blue, black, red, and taking their most inti- intellectual work. I don't want Take an avenue I don't want to wrap up there back. talking. Yeah. No, I want the lawn. I, I work for DC's governor. I, I'm in a, So my dream is to bring all these gangs for the first time and show on DC's lawn in front of this right there in the Capitol. Memorial, yeah. That kings, bloods, crips. Mm. We're back. This is our home. Mm. We're fighting. We could be here. We don't kill each other. Mm. You have given us the direction. Do you think it could descend to violence? Yes, because... I mean, you saw you saw those fucking pitchfork-wielding supremacists with torches. They had fucking see, torches. What? You see, and this is my point, and he called them good guys. My point is, imagine if we were there, the kings. Oh, you geez. get it? Oh, if they were my, blacks. Because the point is, good sometimes have to hit back. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That's and what I want think the community the... to hit back. Yeah, do you think it could? Yes, it could, mm. as if it wants to. And, and that's why, why I... Why does it have to? I cry, I cry because 
you go and you say, yo, like people like me, these 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 gangsters that have turned their life around and now a present message, it's our own brothers that yeah. want to stay in the bottom that say, oh, you a snitch now, or oh, you working for the system, and you see that fake news is real news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the real news cannot exist. That can be very damaging. See? So my point to you is, can it happen? Yes, it can. But I really think that they need to take an example from me, the Kings, the, all those that did it in 94, 95, 96. We evolved every organization and tell them, come to the table understanding that this is not about you. That's not the main cause. The yeah. cause is that this man's got to see the other united again. And we could take care of that separate shit somewhere else. But when we call, when we ring them, blow the alarm, the trumpet... We show up together. Yeah, I agree with that totally. I totally you do. You get what I'm trying to teach? And as a, someone who's lived in America, I'm just, I, I think at the start of our conversation, I said that that was the most disappointing thing to me. That almost the system encourages, enjoys, likes division, likes when there's, when there's this stuff, doesn't like unity, doesn't like the fact that a black man and a yellow man and an Irish man and a Hispanic can walk down the street arm in arm under a protest. And I think that's the message I'd like to give to yeah, people what listening. What I want you to remember is, like I said, the first one who broke the law made it. Remember, this group of rich men and men that came from England did treason against the king. Yep. And the way they did it is they formed a gang. Mm-hmm. And it was a mixture of gangs. And they were mixed people. The power they had to take one of the world powers and mm. chase them out of their land. Do you think they're going to forget that and let any of us ever copy that shit again? <laughs> you don't get it? I think it'll... You know what? I think it'll always happen. No, I, but you get it, the point. Yeah. They knew they were a gang in the yeah, beginning. Yeah. They knew they started at outlaws yeah, yeah. and civil disobedient. Yeah. They seen what they won. Yeah. And they're going, that's the number one thing mm. we got to take from the American Indian, the Latinos, and everybody that comes. Their identity. Their self-identity and yeah. make them what? Made in America. Yeah. Made in the capitalistic. Those values shit in that family shit, come on. So that's what I'm telling kids today. Listen to me, kids. A system has been built to keep us from rising to the top. Gangs, drugs, all that shit is around, but that is no excuse for you to turn your back on your God-given right to defend not only the freedom for your existence, but for the one you want to bring into this world so he can live free too. So my four-year-old deaf son, I want him to have coverage because he's deaf. Mm. He need cochlear implants. I need insurance. Mm. I need to fight for my son because my father was a renter his whole life. Mm. I want to own a house so then my son starts, I got a house. Yeah. Now, you get it? We've stopped caring about the next generation self-loathing on what we're suffering through. Yeah. We've become cowards to fight. For real. Mm. That Braveheart shit, man. I used yeah. to love that shit yeah. when he, you know. And he, he stood. that, And I love that movie. It's just anything that's a freedom fighter that's willing to scream out. Leave us alone. We want to be free. You can take away our women, but you cannot take away our freedom. freedom. You can't take our freedom. Right? That's a good place to end it. Antonio Fernandez, that was a... F- Thank you so much for giving me so much time, by the way. I hope I didn't talk too much. You did not. I just <laughs> loved that. I was a bit nervous coming in here, but I thought... I, I just see a man who's got care and passion and humanity in him and I just wish you every luck in the thank quest you. that you're trying to do and the change you're trying to affect it's, thank you and it's a blessing to me someone like you keep making these part messages to our youth because you know they need messages they need our, they need us to translate 
Look after yourself. Look after yourself. Thank you, bro.